0: Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed.
1: Distinguished guests, including our presidents and first ladies, government officials, foreign dignitaries, and friends. Jeb, Neil, Marvin, Darrow and I, and our families, thank you all for being here. I once heard it said of man that the idea is to die young as late as possible. At age 85, a favorite pastime of George H.W. Bush was firing up his boat, the Fidelity and opening up the three 300-horsepower engines to fly, joyfully fly, across the Atlantic with the Secret Service boats straining to keep up. At age 90, George H.W. Bush parachuted out of an aircraft and landed on the grounds of St. Anne's by the Sea in Kennebunkport, Maine. The church where his mom was married and where he worshiped often Mother liked to say he chose the location just in case the chute didn't open. (laughs) In his 90s, he took great delight when his closest pal, James A. Baker, smuggled a bottle of Grey Goose vodka into his hospital room. Apparently, it paired well with the steak Baker had delivered from Morton's. To his very last days, Dad's life was instructive. As he aged, he taught us how to grow with dignity, humor, and kindness. And when the good Lord finally called, how to meet him with courage and with the joy of the promise of what lies ahead. One reason Dad knew how to die young is that he almost did it twice. When he was a teenager, a staph infection nearly took his life few years later, he was alone in the Pacific on a life raft, praying that his rescuers would find him before the enemy did. God answered those prayers. It turned out he had other plans for George H.W. Bush. For Dad's part, I think those brushes with death made him cherish the gift of life. And he vowed to live every day to the fullest. Dad was always busy. A man in constant motion, but never too busy to share his love of life with those around him. He taught us to love the outdoors. He loved watching dogs flush a covey. He loved landing the elusive striper. And once confined to a wheelchair, he seemed happiest, sitting in his favorite perch on the back porch at Walker's Point, contemplating the majesty of the Atlantic. The horizons he saw were bright and hopeful. He was a genuinely optimistic man. And that optimism guided his children and made each of us believe that anything was possible. He continually broadened his horizons with daring decisions. He was a patriot. After high school, he put college on hold and became a Navy fighter pilot as World War II broke out. Like many of his generation, he never talked about his service until his time as a public figure forced his hand. We learned of the attack on Chichijima, the mission completed, the shoot down. We learned of the death of his crewmates, whom he thought about throughout his entire life. And we learned of the rescue. And then another audacious decision. He moved his young family from the comforts of the East Coast to Odessa, Texas. He and Mom adjusted to their arid surroundings quickly. He was a tolerant man. After all, he was kind and neighborly to the women with whom he, Mom, and I shared a bathroom in our small duplex. Even after he learned their profession, ladies of the night. Dad could relate to people from all walks of life. He was an empathetic man. He valued character over pedigree, and he was no cynic. He looked for the good in each person, and he usually found it. Dad taught us that public service is noble and necessary, that one can serve with integrity and hold true to the important values like faith and family. He strongly believed that it was important to give back to the community and country in which one lived. He recognized that serving others enriched the giver's soul. To us, his was the brightest of a thousand points of light. In victory, he shared credit. When he lost, he shouldered the blame. He accepted that failure is a part of living a full life but taught us never to be defined by failure. He showed us how setbacks can strengthen. None of his disappointments could compare with one of life's greatest tragedies, the loss of a young child. Jeb and I were too young to remember the pain and agony he and mom felt when our three-year-old sister died. We only learned later that dad, a man of quiet faith, prayed for her daily. He was sustained by the love of the Almighty and the real and enduring love of her mom. Dad always believed that one day he would hug his precious Robin again. He loved to laugh, especially at himself. He could tease and needle, but never out of malice. He placed great value on a good joke. That's why he chose Simpson to speak. On email, he had a circle of friends with whom he shared or received the latest jokes. His grading system for the quality of the joke was classic George Bush. The rare sevens and eights were considered huge winners, most of them off color. George Bush knew how to be a true and loyal friend. He nurtured and honored his many friendships with a generous and giving soul. There exist thousands of handwritten notes encouraging, or sympathizing, or thanking his friends and acquaintances. He had an enormous capacity to give of himself. Many a person would tell you that dad became a mentor and a father figure in their life. He listened and he consoled. He was their friend. I think of Don Rhodes, Taylor Blanton, Jim Nance, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and perhaps the unlikeliest of all, the man who defeated him, Bill Clinton. My siblings and I refer to the guys in this group as brothers from other mothers. (laughs) He taught us that a day was not meant to be wasted. He played golf at a legendary pace. I always wondered why he insisted on speed golf. He was a good golfer. Well, here's my conclusion. He played fast so that he could move on to the next event, to enjoy the rest of the day, to expend his enormous energy, to live it all. He was born with just two settings, full throttle, then sleep. (laughs) Taught us what it means to be a wonderful father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. He was firm in his principles and supportive as we began to seek our own ways. He encouraged and comforted, but never steered. We tested his patience. I know I did. (laughs) But he always responded with the great gift of unconditional love. Last Friday, when I was told he had minutes to live, I called him. The guy answered the phone, said, he, I think he can hear you, but he hadn't said anything for most of the day. I said, Dad, I love you, and you've been a wonderful father. And the last words he would ever say on earth were, I love you, too. To us, he was close to perfect, but not totally perfect. His short game was lousy. <laughs> He wasn't exactly Fred Astaire on the dance floor. The man couldn't stomach vegetables, especially broccoli. And by the way, he passed these genetic defects along to us. Finally, every day of his 73 years of marriage, Dad taught us all what it means to be a great husband. He married his sweetheart. He adored her. He laughed and cried with her. He was dedicated to her totally. In his old age, Dad enjoyed watching police show reruns, the volume on high, (laughs) all the while holding Mom's hand. After Mom died, Dad was strong, but all he really wanted to do was hold Mom's hand again. Of course, Dad taught me another special lesson. He showed me what it means to be a president who serves with integrity, leads with courage, and acts with love in his heart for the citizens of our country. When the history books are written, they will say that George H.W. Bush was a great president of the United States, a diplomat of unmatched skill, a commander-in-chief of formidable accomplishment and a gentleman who executed the duties of his office with dignity and honor. In his inaugural address, the 41st President of the United States said this, We cannot hope only to leave our children a bigger car, a bigger bank account. We must hope to give them a sense of what it means to be a loyal friend, a loving parent, a citizen who leaves his home, his neighborhood, and town better than he found it. What do we want the men and women who work with us to say when we are no longer there? That we were more driven to succeed than anyone around us? Or that we stopped to ask if a sick child had gotten better and stayed a moment there to trade a word of friendship? Well, Dad, we're going to remember you for exactly that and much more. And we're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father, a son, or daughter could have. And in our grief, let us smile knowing that dad is hugging Robin and holding mom's hand again.
2: And welcome back to Flavor Politics Podcast. It is the 6th of December, year of our Lord, 2018. And the intro was the eulogy from George W. Bush. You know, I don't want to get super political on that speech, but but I have to say, most of my life, the media has dogged the Bush family. Pretty much all of it. And one of the knocks on George Bush was his uh, horrible speaking. And that speech was probably the most retweeted speech I've seen lately. Um, By everybody. It was a fantastic speech, a great, um, respectful speech to his father. And tying in the daughter and the wife was very moving. But unfortunately, the media couldn't help themselves. As we saw with Reagan, we will see with George W. Bush that, or George H. Bush, um, they have to be partisans. Um, and I frame this from the simple, you know, aspect, folks, when Bill Clinton dies and Barack Hussein ad- Obama dies, which I might not make Obama, you know, he might outlift me, um, but Clinton isn't really looking good, and... You watch that if you disparage him and talk about his many faults at any time, you're going to be crushed, but they can't help themselves, but do it for conservatives. It's like the president died. He will be remembered for his thousand points of light that we dogged and Willie Horton. I mean, that's pretty I could do, that's it, I could shut this podcast off, because that's pretty much what they did. With Obama, you'll hear none of it, because as we've already seen, you know, hey, you know, he's the most scandalous, free president ever, and all those lies they put out there. If you say something, you're a racist piece of shit. So, I mean, it it's frustrating watching that, because as a country, as a leader, and and by no mean of a status that we should bow down to our leaders, um... There should be some respect for a president. I mean, they sacrificed quite a bit. In this case, he sacrificed most of his adult life serving this country in some kind of a capacity. But our media just can't do it. So up front, I want to do some positives. This one surprised me. It came from Luke Russert. This just warms my heart. 35 degrees in D.C. and the line to pay respect to President Bush 41 is over 3.5 hours long per security. It keeps growing. This is America. The lines outside the Capitol are unbelievable. It's about 36 degrees and folks are waiting three and a half hours. He tweeted twice. Benny, the line to pay honor to George H.W. Bush. I started at the end. It's freezing out. It's late. Yet it took me nearly 15 minutes to film the full line that stretches the full length of the Capitol and back. Seven times. I sped the video up times 10 and he did a video. Um, He was beloved. Please share. And I thought that was pretty apropos. Uh, The media might have hated H. Bush. They hate the Bush family. They inherently love all Democrats and hate all Republicans. But the American people, um, they know the deal, so... Also up front, I want to tell a horrible story. And, and I this struck me in my better half. I don't know why it hit us so hard. You, you read these all the time and you hear about it. And most of the time you go, that's horrible. And you just move on. You don't really want to process it. But in this case, because of what has happened since Barack Hussein Obama became president and the demonization of police and the racialization of America... I'm really surprised the story isn't front-page news because the person was African-American that it happened to. But it's Baltimore. And after Freddie Gray on the heels of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and, you know, the media ratcheting up and the hateful groups that came out and demonized everything – uh, with law enforcement that is, you know, capitulated now into we must abolish ice. You know, we've gone that crazy in the last eight years. Um, I think they didn't do it because it is Baltimore and all the details we put out and the, the video I played for like five podcasts on the show showing the Ferguson effect of how each time this happens and the media doesn't report facts, and the people freak the fuck out. Police forces pull back, and they pull back. And we've covered on the show how Baltimore's murder rate is through the fucking roof because they're not policing. If the city doesn't have my back, and you know they've unfortunately um, elected back-to-back Uber Lib mayors who were anti-police, the policemen just sit in their car and drink coffee and eat donuts and say, "Fuck it, they're not. They're not going to do the hard policing because why?" You're just going to throw me in jail. I'm going to go to jail for anything I do. Um, And that that sets the table for this horrible story. Husband a woman killed after helping panhandler speaks out, I want justice. This was tweeted by Oprah, who does it all the time. She says, now I don't know if I'll ever do it again. Now she said that because the person's black. If it was white, she wouldn't say that. She probably wouldn't even cover the story if it was a white person. Because I don't care what anybody says. Oprah's pretty racist. I mean, she just doesn't like white people. I mean, she has a lot of inherently hate towards Caucasians, which, you know, maybe it's her life story. I don't know. But she tweeted it. As Kevin Smith talked about his wife, Jacqueline Smith, he rattled off a list of characteristics he fell in love with. She was a career woman, a good mother, a churchgoer, and most of all, a giving person. Her kindness, he said, is what cost her her life. Now Baltimore police are hunting for an apparent team of panhandlers who preyed on her good nature and stabbed her to death for a few dollars. She was trying to help someone out, Keep told ABC. I think the reality is we forget about the times that we're living in. You may have the best intentions on helping this person, but when you let a person get into your safe zone, you're actually opening yourself up to whatever this person has attended for you. Help me feed my baby about 12.30 a.m. on Saturday, Smith was driving his wife, and daughter, Shavon Smith, home after they had been out celebrating Siobhan's 28th birthday. At a stop sign in Johnston Square, neighborhood of East Baltimore, Jacqueline Smith, 54, spotted a woman standing on the side of the road carrying what looked like a baby wrapped in a blanket and holding a cardboard sign reading, Help me feed my baby, God bless. She asked her husband to pull over, and she rolled down the window and handed the man, woman $10. It was drizzling, it was cold, wet, my wife, like, any normal person felt sorry for the baby, which turned out not to even be a baby. It must have been like a stuffed animal or something wrapped in a blanket from where we were. It looked like a baby, and we thought it was a baby. Kevin Smith said he noticed a man staying next to the panhandling woman, but it never crossed his mind that he and his wife were being set up. As she was handling her money, the guy came to her say thank you, and the woman was saying, God bless you, God bless you. While we're looking at her saying, God bless you, and my wife was handing her the money, he came over the car and said, thank you, and started stabbing my wife and snatched her necklace off and ran. He said the female panhandler reached in the car, grabbed his wife's purse, and scurried off in the darkness. With his wife bleeding profusely from a stab wound to her chest, Smith sped to John Hopkins Hospital, where Jacqueline was pronounced dead. For most people, the last thing you're going to think about is that this person is about to take your life for a few dollars, Smith said. Baltimore interim police commander Gary Tuggle said during a news conference Monday that detectives are seeking the public's help in identifying the two suspects. He describes a female suspect as being in her 20s with medium brown skin, a medium build, about 5 feet tall, and wearing a long brown coat. He said the suspect male accomplice is black, about 5'10", with a medium build, a goatee, and wearing a black hoodie. Using this, he ruses panhandlers to get the attention of the would-be victims. We also want to caution the public about engaging with panhandlers and recognizing the fact not all of them have honest intent. Not all of them are in real need. Kevin Smith says he just wants justice. Just wants justice. And it's such a sign of the times. I I don't want to over... Emphasize this incident because they happen all the time, but this one struck me as my God, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us that this happens? You fake need, get assistance, and then kill somebody over a few bucks and a necklace? That's that's what we've become? So I, I didn't want it to get lost at the back end when I do the crimes. It had to be up front. And, it, and you know, it's the holiday season. I just stare at stuff like this and go, Jesus Christ, what the fuck is wrong with us? Seriously. But as we go into fire for effect, I think it'll help us understand what is fucking wrong with us. <laughs>
3: Democrats need to say to help voters bump this from issue number 14 up to
4: issue number one? I wish I had the answer to that because one of the things that we uh, Democrats uh, have a really hard time... Uh, is connecting to people's hearts instead of here. Um, we're really good at shoving out all the information that touch people here but not here. And I have been saying it at all Senate Democratic Retreats that we need to speak to the heart, not in a manipulative way, not in a way that brings forth everybody's fears and, and resentments, really, to speak to the heart so that people know that we're actually on their side. We have a really hard time doing that. And one of the reasons that, that it was told to me at one of our retreats was that we Democrats know so much. That is true. <laughs> and we have to kind of uh, tell everybody how smart we are. And, and so we have a tendency to to be very
5: for his son.
6: Yeah, I did, did work for his son. And I worked for Lloyd Benson, who, <laughs> uh, who beat him in 1970 when he ran for the Senate race. And then Lloyd Benson lost in 1988 as vice president in Texas in that time. I think that's the common word you hear in this is just decency. He was a decent person, he was a good person, he was a kind person in this. And to me he's almost like the Forrest Gump of the last 50 years of the 20th century because he's almost at every single moment of change in the country. The Soviet Union, World War II, the CIA, the UN, the wars, his son which he had a tremendous impact on. But one thing I'd like to say is I think often in these times when we have these deaths, we're, we're way too quick to canonize these pers- people. George Herbert Walker Bush was a great man he did great things but he also had flaws he was a human being he made mistakes and he was one, he was humble enough to acknowledge those mistakes there was a series of things along the way you can point sometimes in his political campaigns george bush was a good man but he was also somebody that used brass knuckles in a political campaign he was the one that did the willie horton Act. he was the one that did certain things in political campaigns he was it he there's questions about him on iran contra he's a good man but it's, i think it's a lesson to learn is let's not canonize these people Let's make them human beings. Or define them
5: by any one incident.
6: And let's make them human beings that do good things and are good people.
2: You know, I say that over and over on the show. Democrats think they're smarter than everybody. Democrats believe we're all a bunch of fucking inbred, ignorant, dumbasses. And there's Horsu, again, doing exactly what I say they think. (laughs) We're just too smart. We can't connect to our voters because we're too smart. Yeah. She said it. They're too smart for us. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. They're so smart, we don't get why you need 95 pronouns. We don't get all the stupid shit they do. Yeah. Okay. And the second part was Matt Dowd. I thought it was a good primer for what we're about to listen to. And a lot of this is listening. There's articles, but I'm not going to waste your time because the general theme was already pronounced in the beginning is, is you know, he's a Republican, so he's evil. He's got to be racist. we got to link something to him being a racist because, if you know, we're not doing our job for the Democrats if we don't. But we don't need to canonize these people unless they're Democrats. And I will bet you, as sure as I'm a fat, bald guy, when it comes time, once again... Sorry, my mic is falling, so I hate to be really close to the mic. I don't know what the hell that's about. There we go. Um, When it comes time to Clinton, either Clinton or Barack Hussein Obama, he'll never say those words. It'll be, it is important that we respect the office of the President of the United States. These people were the president, they were our leaders, and they guided us through incredibly hard times. I can only hear the Obama. Oh, the company, country was on the verge of a depression, and he saved us. And it brought out that our country is so racist. I mean, that's it, in a nutshell. Just just wait for those sound bites. They're coming, you know, 10, 20 years from now. But that was not the gist. The gist wasn't just a nice little jab for Matt Dowd, who used to be, an independent but in the times of Trump I always like to say it brings out the true colors of people. We know who people really are now. We know if anybody had any doubt with all these fucking journalists who their you know where their thoughts lie and their thoughts lie with the religion of progressivism. So it's probably a good thing Trump got elected so that you know going forward nobody you see on your TV likes you. They disparage everything about you from your religion to your family construct to your skin color. They are apologists for white people. All white people are horrible. I am so embarrassed that I'm white. I mean, they these are our media. There's no way to get around it. They're just Democrats or severe progressives on CNN and MSDNC masquerading as journalists. But as stated, Willie Horton came back. And most of us don't remember the Willie Horton ad, but the Willie Horton ad was a true ad. I mean, it happened. Gave somebody a furlough. He we went out and killed somebody. If a Democrat did this, this is just politics. This is just politics are the words they say. When Hillary was going dirty with Trump, it's just politics. But when it's a Republican, it's racist. Because once again, you can't brainwash the masses with That party's all racist and cover for the fact that Democrats formed the KKK, for Christ's sake, did Jim Crow laws, and were called Dixiecrats back in the day. I mean, that they were the racist party. They've been spinning this shit for so long, most people don't know anything because they're stupid and they wait for Twitter to tell them what to think. You must connect everything to racism. So the media went full-fledged Willie Horton. During the time we're supposed to be honoring the life of George H.W. Bush. Because, once again, he's a Republican. We can't really honor him, can we?
0: Bush and
6: his allies made up the ground by attacking Dukakis too liberal. Soft on defense, they said
7: and soft on crime.
1: His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. One was Willie Horton who murdered a boy in a robbery
7: stabbing him nineteen times.
8: The strategy worked. In the the end, Dukakis lost forty states and Bush was president.
4: Yeah well he he did strike a more conservative tone on civil rights when he was in Texas but as president he was uh, I think known as somebody who tried to reach across racial lines in ways Republicans haven't always done. Uh, I mean, it was, it it is true that uh, he was part of a movement of the Republican Party that took advantage of racial divisions. That's how Republicans, that's one of the big ways Republicans made inroads in Texas and across the South with those Southern, those white Southern Democrats to convince them to vote uh, first for Ronald Reagan and then for the Republicans who who followed Reagan. Uh, But. President Bush was never known as someone who, uh, you know, struck racial, uh, who who seemed to exploit that. He was, Mm -hmm. in fact, someone who I think tried to reach across racial lines. And that's something that goes back even back to his days in college where he was active in civil rights groups on the campus at Yale.
8: Eddie Glaw, jump in here if you will. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's a really complicated story. Yeah. I mean, I, we, have to, we have to bring up Willie Horton. Yeah, the Lee Atwater ad. The Lee Atwater ad, and what it, what it meant in the battle against Michael Dukakis. We know that he was losing, Dukakis was leading, and then that ad started running, and the way in which he appealed to racial animus. But at the same time that that's happening, you know, this is the guy who passed the American Disabilities Act. Yeah. A guy who talked about the Clean Air Act, I mean, who passed the Clean Air Act. So there's a way in which he would do anything to get elected, but the sense of what it meant to govern, his commitment to the country.
7: You know, his campaign has gotten a reputation for being responsible for the famous Willie Horton ad uh, that was used against Dukakis. In fact, the Bush campaign didn't, didn't put out that ad. That was done by a third party group.
5: And this is also a president whose campaign, you know, included the Willie Horton ad, the most famous dog whistle ad, you know, until this, this cycle.
6: Bush and his allies made up the ground by attacking
7: Dukakis as too liberal. Soft on defense, they said and soft on crime
1: his revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole
7: one was Willie Horton who murdered a boy in a robbery stabbing him 19 times the strategy worked in the end
8: Dukakis lost 40 states and Bush
7: was president
9: do you think that the Willie Horton ad against Michael Dukakis ushered in a a new era because while that is still a bad ad uh, when you look at it now it seems tame compared to what kind of ads are on the air every two years.
6: It seems tame now, but that was something that hinted at racial animosity. It was certainly by no means uh, George Bush's best moment in later years. He was not proud of it. The best he could say was, I make a differentiation between campaigning Mm -hmm. and governing. In retrospect, he never should have allowed... The ad that actually the Willie Horton ad was an independent ad, but there was an official ad that uh, hinted at some of the same things. They should
8: not have done that.
6: But he also had flaws. He was a human being. He made mistakes. And he he was humble enough to acknowledge those mistakes. There was a series of things along the way you can point, sometimes in his political campaigns. George Bush was a good man, but he was also somebody that used brass knuckles in a political campaign. He was the one that did the Willie Horton ad
10: there were not that many good angels in the 88 campaign that was uh that was willie horton that was uh michael Dukakis. flag
8: flag factories yeah it was a rough campaign uh, but also the ways in which the, the bush the hw bush presidency Predicted Trump's are interesting as well. Uh, He uh, famously ran on the Willie Horton ad, and Trump just cut a campaign ad in the wake of the migrant caravan crisis Mm. that many people said echoed that one. But I think a lot of the forces uh, that Republicans in 1988 through 1992 really thought they could (laughs) command, I think you see what the Willie Horton ad and other things uh, of that ilk have now taken command of the party, and Trump is the representation of that. Uh, it's true that George H.W. Bush's personality could be so disarming and so kind, uh, but politics was tough back then, just as tough today. Remember Lee Atwater. Remember the Willie Horton campaign. Sure. That's how George H.W. Bush was elected. We have to bring up Willie Horton. Yeah, the Lee Atwater ad. The Lee Atwater ad and what it what it meant in the battle against Michael Dukakis. We know that he was losing. Dukakis was leading, and then that ad started running, and the way in which he appealed to racism. Sam, was it really a kindler, gentler time, the way it's sometimes recalled? I mean, think about 1988, uh, the Bush campaign. Lee Otwater was the campaign manager. Roger Ailes was a media consultant. Uh, this famous Willie Horton ad that supported the Bush campaign tore down the caucus. Pretty ugly uh, kind of campaigning. And yet it seems H.W. Bush really separated campaigning from governing and saw a big difference between the That's- two. But was it really a kinder, gentler inter- time?
7: That's an interesting point. I think the Ailes-Atwater combination in 1988 took politics to a terrible level that it had not been before. Politics has always been a terrible level in many respects, but they took it farther. Willie Horton. I've interviewed Willie Horton after, after the election in the prison where he resides in the... Uh, Baltimore, in the state penitentiary in Maryland, Lee Atwater said to reporters, "I'm going to make Willie Horton the most famous black man in America, because he'd been released on a weekend release. He'd raped a woman in Maryland and savaged her boyfriend, and they blamed the governor Ducaucus's program. Of course, it was a program brought to uh, Massachusetts by." a republican governor who took it from another republican governor who was the first one in the nation to have a weekend release program that man's name was ronald reagan still they were effective in in, and bush did i think what he did was he didn't like it you say well if he didn't like it he's the boss cut it off i hate to say it but i think he wanted to be president and and it, it they he put it in their hands and he sort of turned aside which and that ego, yeah, that ego,
8: that desire to be president. Uh, there, there were dark stains, but then there were these core values that we look at, that I think we all take pride in. So there's yeah. a there's a kind of complicated yeah, I, 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 yeah. nature there. In 1988, a political action
3: committee with ties to George Bush's campaign released an infamous ad that has become almost synonymous with dog whistle politics. Willie Horton, a black man convicted of violent crimes in the 1970s and 80s, was featured in an ad designed to stoke white fear and deliver one simple message. Democrats are soft on crime. Uh, This ad, of course, uh, up until this campaign, probably, uh, remembered as uh, one of the dirtiest in politics. Uh, Is that something that the former president regrets doing, or how does he think about that in hindsight?
9: The ad you've shown was put out by an independent committee. It was an early example of what we now think of as independent expenditures. Hmm. The campaign ad that the Bush campaign did was called the revolving door and had had uh, criminals coming in and out. President Bush's view was that, A, we didn't put out the ad with the mugshot, and B, the furlough program was wrong. Hmm. And I was right on that issue. And he held that view, certainly, the last time I talked to him about it was probably six, seven years ago.
3: Hmm. We see echoes of this, though, in what the Trump campaign has been doing on immigration. Yes, the effort to tap racial fears, uh, you know, if you're
4: getting ethical advice from Roger Stone and he's telling you you're going too far, it seems to me you're probably going too far. I think this, I think this is, does stand as a as a stain on, on George Bush's, many admirable things about George Bush, but I think the willingness to first do the ad that showed both black and white prisoners going through the revolving door, um, and then to have this group that was independent but not fully independent, had ties to Roger Ailes, um, stands is something that, he, that, I, that I can't imagine he was, he was proud of, although it did uh, contribute to his victory in 1988.
9: I, I talked to Governor Dukakis about this, and Dukakis said George Bush wasn't a racist. This was in the public record. Any, any Republican would have used it. And, which I thought was incredibly gracious and magnanimous of Governor Dukakis, and interesting.
4: Hmm. It does. It did set a new standard for what you could run in a presidential campaign and survive and win with an ad that was pretty apparently racist being aired on your behalf.
9: There's one other dorky point about this. The ad was a very small buy in the Maryland suburbs because the press would see it on their (laughs) television. Seriously, it was an early case of earned media for free media sorry for an ad that was made is it was covered far more than it ever ran in the country
3: yeah it seems like a depressing uh, statement natasha that this ad that we just saw seems to be it's almost
0: run-of-the-mill for what we see today yeah and it resonates i mean uh, my takeaway from that is it just really reminds you of the ad that the trump campaign for twenty twenty released um, just fear-mongering over the border showing you know Migrants um, basically portraying them as people trying to storm the border, as invaders. Um, it's, it, it does resonate a lot, and it just shows how history really repeats.
2: And it wasn't just on TV. New York Times. Upon Bush's death, tasteless New York Times devotes story to dog whistle Willie Horton ad. New York Times reporter Peter Baker tastily marked the beginning of a four-day commemoration of the life of H.W. Bush by whining about the dog whistle racist Willie Horton ad from Bush's successful 1988 campaign against... Democrat Michael Dukakis, His 30 years media conventional wisdom has been appalled at the supposedly racist campaign ad criticizing the irresponsibly lax prison program in Massachusetts, some of which featured the story of Willie Horton, convicted murderer who raped and killed a woman in Maryland while on a weekend furlough used to accurately portray Duk- Dukakis as being soft on crime. Bush's own campaign ad didn't even feature Horton's name or picture. An earlier ad showing Horton's face was produced by an independent group. But that doesn't stop the times from targeting Bush on the race after his death in Tuesday's edition. Horton adds a tone on race and politics that still stings for African Americans. A campaign spot is called a pretty clear dog whistle, the online headline. Bush made Willie Horton an issue in 88, and the racial scars are still fresh. The tributes to former Bush H.W. Bush in recent days have focused on his essentially decent civility and his embrace of others, including even his one time opponents like Clinton, who he talks to till his death. He was the last gentleman. Mr. Bush's successful campaign for the presidency in eighty eight was marked in part by racially charged politics—a crime that continued to reverberate to this day. The Willie Horton episode and the political advertising that came to epitomize it remain among the most controversial chapters in modern politics. Willie Horton was a African American prisoner in Massachusetts who released on a furlough program. Blah 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 blah. In Baker's telling, the Horton ad is to blame for tougher sentencing laws championed by Clinton, among others. The reason why the Willie Horton ad is so important in this political landscape is it wasn't just about a racist ad that misrepresented the furlough process, said Marisa Chaitlin, a Georgetown University professor of African American history, but it also taught the Democrats that in order to win elections, they had to mirror some of the racially infected language of tough on crime. Baker admitted the wisdom of the Massachusetts furlough program was open to debate aside from race. Releasing nonviolent offenders on weekends to help ease reentry into society was the goal, but freeing violent convicts raised questions about security. Once again, remember, we say all the time on here Democrats rewrite history. They rewrite history. The facts still remain the same. A man, regardless of color, was released from prison on a furlough that he shouldn't have been released for. And he went out and killed and raped somebody. If a Republican did that, regardless of race, gender or sexual or it could be a gay black handicapped transgender Republican governor did that. Fair fucking game. Fair game. But they rewrite it. it's racist. It was a racist ad. We're not supposed to report the facts that a black man killed somebody because he's black. We're supposed to not even talk about that because the person was black. And remember, one of the key things that Carville did to H. Bush to win the election, Bush used like Costa Rican or some Latino country to publicate his flyers. If a Republican or Democrat was doing that and the Republican pointed that out it'd be xenophobic you see how they play the game oh what's wrong with having Latinos make this they're they're trying to help Latino countries that are impoverished would be the way the media played it but with H it was oh he's not American first they couldn't use American publishers. That was a huge thing. It was an HBO documentary about how awesome the Clinton campaign was. And this is the greatest thing that ever happened. A little fucking dork from fucking Arkansas won the presidency. Look up the special. I'm not making that shit up. That was the key part of the election. That they turned the tide. But they rewrite history. They make it a dog whistle instead of facts. They call it racist when it's politics. Today, what they have done to Trump is ten times dirtier than pointing out a man that championed furloughs got people killed. And if you really look at that race, anybody with an IQ above a fucking potato peeler... Highlighting an article in the end of the show, which is just so scary to all men on the planet. His stupid video of riding in the tank killed him. Everybody says that. Dude was rolling around in a tank, looked like a fucking dork. It was a horrible promo. I don't know why they did it. But it just made him look unpresidential. So the American people, yeah, yeah, I know. The caucus was a horrible candidate who wasn't going to win that election, regardless of Willie Horton or not. All right. It just wasn't going to happen. So that was wave one. That was the first wave. And then through the service, CNN, MSDNC, all major media, somehow, someway, we have to use this event to bash Trump. We're going to bash Trump. And I want, before I play the soundbite, which is long, You'd understand there is a Twitter thing going around with Hillary and Bill ignored Trump, didn't even shake his hand. They're so awesome. The resistance jerking off without cream at this point in time. They're dry jerking. They're just all in that shit. That was very vulgar, but it's just so pathetic. I mean, it's all over Twitter. There is a video. And yes, the Trumps were greeted by the Obamas, the Bushes, and Bill shook Trump's hand. They were cordial. They were civil. When it did leak out on one air, this Amanda Carpenter, who's the latest resistance reporter, she said, Well everybody's on their best they're on their best behavior because of the tension Trump does. So it was still a, a bite on Trump. But the fact of the matter remained there was greetings. This is a lie manufactured by the media. It's horseshit. As we'll see. But this is a long soundbite. But this is what the key point they wanted us to take from H's funeral was
10: Trump's fucking. Horrible. Despite the deep resentments between these two families, including the former president, lifelong Republican George H.W. Bush's refusal to endorse Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign after repeated attacks on the former president's son, Jeb Bush. Today, a very gracious statement from President Trump just a matter of hours ago, posting it on Twitter. He wrote the following, President George W. Bush led a long, successful and beautiful life. Whenever I was with him, I saw his absolute joy for life and true pride in his family. His accomplishments were great from beginning to end. He was a truly wonderful man and will be missed by all. The two men really didn't have much of a personal relationship. You'll remember George H.W. Uh, Bush. He promoted volunteerism through uh, a mission that he called points of light. A thousand points of light was the saying. And the president noted that in the comments that the White House posted from President Trump and the First Lady earlier today where President Trump said, through his essential authenticity, disarming wit, and unwavering commitment to faith, family, and country, President Bush inspired generations of his fellow Americans to public service to be, in his words, a thousand points of light, illuminating the greatness, hope, and opportunity of America to the world. But President Trump was not all Always so gracious about Bush's hope for a kinder, gentler nation. It was just five months ago during a political rally in Montana that he attacked George H.W. Bush and those words saying, what the hell is that? Criticizing that slogan versus his own slogan, make America great again. President Bush was quoted in a book just a year ago speaking of Donald Trump saying that I didn't know him, I don't know him, but I know he's a blowhard. He says, I don't like him in those remarks. There really was sort of a deep dislike between these two in the wake of the 2016 election. President Trump, of course, did not attend the funeral services celebrating the life of Barbara Bush. Instead, it was the First Lady Melania Trump who attended in his place.
0: You know, in the op-ed today, you, you lament the loss of dignity associated with the presidency under President Trump. Uh, you know, you talk about the pillars yes. of democracy
4: and, and your words are there being, quote, chipped away crudely and casually. Obviously, mm-hmm. you feel it's important, Patty, to point out the difference between Trump and the president we just lost. Well, I, I think that it would be tragic if we forget what the presidency is supposed to look like. The president is supposed to revere democracy and all of the institutions that hold it up. The president is supposed to work with our allies um, with diplomacy and respect, and at the same time stand up to autocrats who murder people. The president is supposed to understand and adhere to the Constitution. The president is supposed to be a grown up. You know, nine year olds should be able to look up to the president of the United States, not feel that he's one of them.
0: You know, it, and it, if we forget that, I think we're doomed know he he's not one to mend fences too too readily i think he's doing this because he feels he has to do it and i'm also assuming that general kelly has had a big hand in it i do know from the bush family that they are very appreciative and think the white house has just bent over backwards gone to great lengths been extraordinarily helpful that said just I can't help but wonder if there was a thought bubble over Donald Trump's head just now, what he was thinking as he stood there. I,
5: I have to imagine he was thinking, how much longer do I have to stand here?
0: It's, it's you know, he had to be there. He did it. Um, I think it's interesting he did it because maybe he could have waited to the National Cathedral. And then he saluted.
9: That's it was... was all told about a minute and 15 seconds.
0: It, it was somewhat theatrical. Uh, in nature, but it's—I I can't imagine that this is very comfortable for him these moments. And I think it is going to be fascinating to watch the cathedral on Wednesday and how he interacts with these other presidents and how he sits there during these eulogies. Well,
9: Jeffrey, that—that I mean, that is one of the things. I mean, traditionally, a sitting president would give a eulogy for a, a former president um, obviously that is not going to take place uh, this is a special circumstance giving that President Bush's son who was, is also a former president is going to be giving the eulogy um, but it, it's it's one thing to have for the bushes to have president trump there is another thing it would have been another thing for them to let him speak
5: exactly i mean and and i think that we need to remember the historical precedent that you just mentioned that a sitting president in the room is the one who's typically given the honor of of addressing the crowd any crowd to be honest and you know i think we need to be a a little bit uh, thoughtful and careful about how we interpret what president trump is doing here i mean uh, david gergen just mentioned that we need to give him credit for not. Tweeting out nasty things about President Bush. I mean, I, I, I'm concerned that we shouldn't give credit to someone for not kicking dirt on the grave of a person who just passed away.
1: There was a presence in the front row that needs to be discussed, and yeah. that was uh, the current president, uh, whose job today was to. Show up to attend. He did not have a speaking
6: role right. and to be respectful.
0: Yeah, and look, even his presence, I think, said more about the 41st president and the Bush family than it did about him. Um, he was a good guest, um, and, and I think that's all we need to say about him right now. Um, but it became uncomfortable when every one of the people who eulogized the 41st president talked about civility, yeah. talked about generosity. You could feel the unstated, I mean, it, it was a contrast. It was, um, I, I don't think it was quite a rebuke, but it was such an obvious, an obvious contrast yeah. to what we see now in the yeah, office.
5: I think Prince Charles has felt more comfortable in New Guinea <laughs> than this president felt here today.
2: Like Willie Horton, the media was obsessed with this point. David reads, Totally bizarre conversation on MSDNC right now. They're nailing Trump for making the Bush funeral about him when he just sat there and listened, and because of all the praise of Bush, was implicit rebuke of Trump, and therefore Trump made it all about himself. Okay, I've gone cross-eyed. Sonny Bunch. Holy shit, CNN is still talking about a body language at the funeral. Literal chiron. During... The memorial for a head of state, the office of the president of the United States, I'm using all the words that will be used for a Democrat, Trump awkwardly greets ex-presidents at Bush 41 funeral. That was, oh, I'm sorry, it's highlighted in red with Trump's tough week. That's, as Larry O'Connor says, be better. That's their chiron, But there's no bias over there. They're just reporting. Katie Rogers, the Bushes have so far not taken emotional shots at the toxicity of Trump's Washington. They focused instead on unity, love, laughter, and importance of character. And an emotional 43 says his father taught him how to serve with love in his heart for his fellow Americans. That's a Washington Post reporter. Saying it as if she was upset they haven't taken shots. Washington Post senior political reporter, Aaron Blake. The Trumps are seated next to, one, the President Trump said was illegitimate, Obama, two, the President, he said, assaulted women, Clinton, three, the lady, so so she said, should be in jail, Hillary, the President, he said, was the second worst behind Obama, Carter. These people are paid to make everything about Trump. Several of them are getting rich doing it. It's as simple as that, Red State said, and he's right. At the funeral for former President George H.W. Bush today, former President George W. Bush handed Michelle Obama, what was it, candy, of course. Yeah. We went through this with McCain's funeral. Gough Bennett, and normal people. Nice moment. George W. Bush slipped Michelle Obama what looked like a piece of candy upon entering the National Cathedral and greeting the former President's First Ladies. She wants the candy. It's a cute thing they do surprising considering if i was george w bush the things the obama said about them and eight years of presidency blaming them for everything wrong in the country i would never talk to those motherfuckers i'm a small person on that normal stuff i could deal with but that was just deep evil they bashed bush forever but bush let it ride oliver willis again couldn't handle the candy George W. Bush could give Michelle Obama an entire candy factory. He's still bad. He's a monster, and of the same ilk as Trump, just better at covering it. On one hand, George W. Bush and Michelle Obama seem to have some sort of candy exchange thing going on that people find endearing. On the other hand, of thousands of Iraqis are dead. In conclusion, this is a land of contrast. He's so cute, we'll almost forget he started an unsanctioned war that led to 15 years of civil war that resulted in the birth of ISIS, that resulted in terrorist attack in Europe, that resulted in the far right rising across the continent and the fall of Europe. But how cute. Rewriting history again. ISIS was formed because Barack Obama created a vacuum by pulling us out of Iraq. But let's not talk about truth. Let's not talk about facts. We're the left. We don't do it. So yeah, even there, there was W. Bush is evil. I heard not one pundit say, what a great speech by W. Bush. But if Barack Obama would have got up there and saying, fucking amazing grace they would have jerked off under the table and then there was crazy shit this is a grab bag from bashing quail to whatever the media oh they bash ceos because trump's rich and this is this soundbite will never be heard once again when a democrat is honored and
5: you could argue that that cost him a reelection you have to have a united party behind you in order to get reelected and you know pat buchanan is going after him doing pretty well in uh, sure. in new hampshire and percent he's, he he's getting he's getting hit uh... by newt gingrich and so he he got hammered but part of it was his own making because You know, what he called voodoo economics, he then under Reagan bought into this kind of discredited idea now, discredited by history, that you can cut taxes, raise defense spending and still balance the budget. So this was this mythology and there was a tax-cutting fever that took over uh, the Republican Party and he uh, got caught in the cross-currents and wasn't strong enough. Politically to resist it uh, when he was starting when he was vice president, he should have stood up more strongly, and I think that really hurt him. His domestic record just wasn't good enough uh, for a country that was in some economic uh, trouble. And he didn't seem like he had a vision of the future, what he called the vision thing." These days, with the hyper-media news cycle and the president who
11: loves to star in every single second of it, to take a pause and look back uh... at the way things were it uh, can't be again because history marches on but at the way this man led the country and what we might be able to learn from that and beyond that as i said just by doing this together perhaps just touching those cords of a shared citizenship Right? everybody's in their corners not just in politics but in business as well for example uh, the statistics show that c-e-o-s of the generation of george uh, herbert walker bush When they paid themselves, they didn't pay themselves 300 times (laughs) the wages of the average worker, as they do by uh, statistical uh, calculation today. They paid about 30 or 40. They made a good living in in the United States. But they would have been ashamed to pay themselves that much money. Uh, Something has changed in America about that sense of shared citizenship, not just in politics.
2: But what brought him down politically, brought his presidency down, was not a foreign policy. No. It was a sense of, that he was not connected. That's right to the American people. I mean, we all remember the the infamous uh, milk scanning in the, uh, in the which, was
10: which was
8: not false. But as they might say today, fake news. Yeah, yeah. but uh, it was
0: misreported by the. It was misreported, but scene.
10: still ends but up it, in the obituary. It ended
8: up in the obituary, <laughs> and, it, and it
2: was and it was used to, to, to that. And there's former Vice and President
0: well, Dan Quayle, who served, of course, with President Bush,
2: and Dick Cheney. Yeah. How does uh, how does uh, greeting uh, President
9: Obama? How does Dan Quayle fit into the equation as you look back at at the the Bush legacy?
0: Well, he almost almost dropped from the ticket, although the loyalty of Bush forty one rejected the advice of political advisors who thought that he had become a liability, and he was chosen for youth for conservative credentials, but he was hardly the the best of the Indiana senators because Dick Lugar was the senior senator.
6: I was talking to somebody who's still pretty close to him. Still talks to me. He sort of, he, he sort of knows that he he's he's uh, uh, whatever you want to call it. That that you know he he didn't that there are some who you know politically who feel as if he wasn't as successful as he could have been. But but people have appreciated how he's handled his what post- an image vice we just president. saw, by-
2: but it wasn't just. Stopping there, folks. Imagine being so bitter, angry, and filled with hatred that you feel the need to crap all over the idea of a service dog mourning the loss of his companion. We suppose at this point nothing really surprises from leftist, leftist regs like Slate, but wow, this was really awful, even for them. John Cardillo called the writer of the garbage piece Ruth Graham out. What a miserable life of Slate must lead to write something like this. I maintain that leftists are angry and happy people who want to bring everybody else down. Ruth Graham. Sorry for bringing you down from the joy of an imagining a dog was grieving. This is her article. This is a real article. Don't spend your emotional energy on silly H.W. Bush. He's a service dog who has been with the president for six months. Not his lifelong companion. I'm not even going to read it. I... I, I copied it down but I'm not reading it they ended up having to repost something saying "Is a service dog has only been there for six months so we weren't total dicks but you were a dick you're a dick and the media just doesn't get it They don't get how we see them, how we know you're just
12: liberal activists as demonstrated by Mojo. And many other uh, people in the press that went after George H.W. Bush every day. I saw some of my conservative friends come out yesterday saying how hypocritical the media hated Bush and Bush hated the media. Well, yeah, that was the case. It was it was like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Had a deal that they fought like hell every day, and then at six o'clock, they put it to the side. Yeah, because they could do that, Willie. And this Maureen Dowd quote that I read yesterday, that was from her column, a note that George H. W. Bush sent to her after, quite frankly, loathing the work that she did for the New York Times for such a long, long time. George H. W. Bush says this: "I reserve the to the right to whine." To not read, to use profanity, but if you ever get really hurt, hmm. or if you ever are really down and need a shoulder to cry on, or just need a friend, give me a call. I will be there for you. I'll not let you down. That is the whole point. You can have a contentious relationship with people professionally. And still save your humanity the way George H.W. Bush did for people who may go after you in the daytime. It it just it's it's an example we all have to follow. The problem with that line of reasoning is the facts
2: go against what you're saying, Joe. You don't go after Democrats like you go after Republican. AP offers tasteless obituary of George H.W. Bush. The AP had recently retired correspondent Michael Grixiskin. Also particularly, this not only the lead paragraph of the story, but also in their second tweet about Bush's death. George H.W. Bush, a patrician New Englander, presidency soared with a coalition victory over Iraq and Kuwait, but then plummeted into the throes of a weak economy that led voters to turn him out. Offer, after a single term, has died. He was 94. They bash his vision. Talk about how Ross Perot made him lose a um, reputation of a man to indecision and and inter- indeterminate views. A wimp. Work hard, play hard approach to the presidency, won broad public approval, held more news conferences in most months than Reagan did in most years. Kindler, gentler, kindly engaged in volunteerism, a litany of foreign policy successes, but his failure was chalked up to how his true interests lay elsewhere outside the realm of net- nettlesome domestic politics. Seven years of economic growth ended in 90, sparked an intense debate over race, gender, and the modern workplace. Just passed him. And I can read this whole article, but I won't. How they really treated him. Just days before the 1988 Iowa caucuses, CBS anchor Dan Rather tried to torpedo Bush's presidential campaign with a slashing interview on a rand contra affair, falsely pitched to the Bush campaign as a routine profile, Rather berated then-Vice President a live interview on the evening news. You made us hypocrites in the face of the world. How could you sign on to such a policy? Reporters openly disdained Bush's 1988 campaign against liberal Dukakis, And what was supposed to be a news story, NBC Nightly News correspondent Lisa Myers faulted Bush's rhetoric on the Pledge of Allegiance, asserting that it leads some to recall Samuel Johnson's observations that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. After the election, time is saying Gary Willis frowned, Bush won by default and by fouls. His mandate is to ignore the threats to our economy, sustain that Reagan heritage of let's pretend and serve as figurehead for what America has become, a frightened empire hiding its problem from itself. Six months into his term, the success of the Bush presidency is going to depend largely on his ability to prove that Bush as president is not the same as Bush's candidate and the way he behaved on his flag issue, I think it's going to make it harder for him because it's a reminder of what kind of cheapness and demagoguery he was capable of, of and occasionally on some issues will be capable of again. Depor- reporters deplored the so-called Willie Horton, which we talked about all the time. Uh, yesterday, the day before, it was just a constant reminder that reporters wanted to find a way to link him to racism because, once again, he's a conservative. All conservatives are racist. Liberal media pressured Bush to renounce his most famous campaign pre- pledge, no new taxes. NBC's Andrea Mitchell sounded like a Democratic operative on October 12, 1990, nightly news. The American people have failed to realize that they have responsibility in all of this, but one of the reasons is for 10 years, Republicans in the White House, first Ronald Reagan and then George Bush, have been telling them they don't have to pay for what they get. When economic growth slowed a year later, the media found, media found a way to blame Bush and his original stance of low taxes. Yes, times are tough because of the mistakes we made in the past, including voodoo economics supported by George Bush, the media also found a way to diminish President Bush's key foreign policy achievements. When the president used military top of Panamanian dictator Noriega, CBS White House reporter Wyatt Andrews fretted. Mr. Bush is erasing his old image of being timid, but the new question is now, almost overnight, is whether this president is exhibiting signs of being reckless. After the successful liberation of Kuwait in 91, U.S. News World Report, Matthew Cooper and Ken Walls try to tarnish the moment, too. The political danger for Bush is that he could go overboard in exploiting his Gulf triumph, possibly by lapsing in the mudslinging over patriotism that characterizes his 88 campaign. After the war, approval ratings were the highest ever, recorded by modern polling, but the media tagged him as a racist for failing to embrace a liberal civil rights bill. While we see George Bush saying that he doesn't like the racist politics, boy, he's letting his White House staff play it full bore, Andrea Mitchell said. Talking about the same legislation three days later, three days earlier, CBS brought up Willie Horton. Republicans labeled his quota bill because they know white voters don't like quotas. Bush's choice of Clarence Thomas for Supreme Court was pillory just a few days after the pick was announced. And 91 columnist Carl Rowan blasted Bush and Thomas on Insider Washington. Clarence Thomas is the best only at his ability to bootlick for Ronald Reagan and George Bush. They didn't pick him because he was black. They picked him because he's a black conservative. You gave Clarence Thomas a little flower on his face. You think you have David Duke talking. could say that about a black person? New York Times editorial writer Brent Staples blasted. Judge Thomas consistently played the race card in the tradition of Patron, George Bush. In the coverage of the 92 campaign, journalists kept trying to punish Bush for the '88 campaign they despised. In 92, CBS' Randall Pinkston flatly asserted Bush does not have a great civil rights track record with many black Americans, beginning with the use of the controversial Willie Horton ad. We're still using that shit. Fucking 30 years later, for Christ's sake. The same month, NBC Brian Gumble charged George Bush has been at the front of point of incidents that have exacerbated race relations in the country. Times Michael Kramer was even harsher. It would help, too, if the man would who sanctioned the infamous Willie Horton ad during his 88 run for the White House, could admit its complicity in developing the images and code words that encourage whites to demonize blacks. Newsweek's Joe Klein condemned Bush's renomination convention. The whole week was doubly wall-to-wall ugly. The Republican Party reached an unimaginable slouchy and brazen and constant level of mendacity last week. Bush's campaign mode now, which means menacity doesn't matter, aggression is all, and wall-to-wall ugly is the order of the battle for the duration. Did we not just hear that 30 years later about Trump? Did we not just hear that? A September headline in the Times captured the media's overarching spin. Bush is harsh. His backers, backers harsher. October, Brian Gumbel presented a fact that Bush would resort to low blows in a debate with Bill Clinton when he asked commentator Joe Chancellor, how nasty do you expect George Bush, Bush to be? Three days later on CBS, Harry Reid made his disdain clear when he cast Bush question about Clinton's college area trip to Moscow as red-baiting junk. A poll of Washington Media Bureau chiefs and correspondents found that just 7% voted for George H.W. Bush in 92 versus 89% for Bill Clinton and 2% for an independent Ross Perot. The White House press corps by and large detested George Bush times William A. Henry III revealed after the 92 election on a PBS special. He argued that the media's coverage of Bush was so one-sided it hurt journalism among among conservatives and Republican voters. The real contempt for him showed through in their reporting in a way that I think got up the nose of the American people. Keep all this in mind as you hear journalists trumpet their praise of Bush this week. They weren't always singing the same tune. That's the media. Nothing has changed 30 years later. NBC, ABC, CBS, PBS, CNN, MSDNC, they despise conservatives. The same words they're saying about Trump, some of them warranted, were said about George H.W. Bush, a good man. And the evil things that Obama did during his election, you never heard. The Chicago politics was called Chicago politics. It's just politics. When Democrats do it, it's just politics. There's never been a time, as we showed, we did the one show about all the conventions. There's never been a convention Republicans have ever done that they weren't evil and dark, and the left was uplifting and light. So, he was a great man. The history books will rewrite it as he was evil. As the years go by, it'll be worse. Today, it's only he's a good man because he wasn't like Trump. So immigration, So quick headlines really quick. California Democrats plan to extend Medicaid to illegal immigrants. They're going to put them on Medi-Cal. But understand, as the Washington Examiner reported and other things like Fair Immigration reported, Paul Better writes in the Washington Examiner Monday that according to the 2014 Census Bureau data, of all non-citizens are using a welfare program, and that number increases to 70% for those here 10 or more years. That is 4.6 million Americans. Actual number, 4,684,784 million non-citizen households receive welfare. And nearly all 4,370,385 had at least one worker in the House. In the reports, Stephen A. Cam- Camarota, the Director of Research, and Karen Ziegler, a demographicer at the Center, said that in census data about half of those are in the United States illegally. The MSM adamantly insists it's the opposite. And since we're moving towards Europe, seven adult migrants suspected of raping a 10-year-old Finnish girl She's ruined for life. A legal alien pleads guilty to horrifying rape murder of Islamic teenager. This is in Fairfax County, Virginia. The amazing thing is the stories from the Daily Mail, because our media won't cover it. An illegal alien pleaded guilty on Wednesday to raping and murdering an Islamic teen last year in a horrifying case near mosque in Fairfax County, Virginia. Darwin Martinez-Torres, 25, pled guilty of capital murder and the rape of a 17-year-old girl. He's from El Salvador, and he's part of MS-13. Washington Post buried the lead. Daily Caller, the U.N. is demanding migrants get the same rights as natives, immediately including voter rights and welfare. That's why that Democrat was calling in the U.N. for the border. But we get stories like this. Honduras' mother waiting for migrant son missing in route to the U.S., that's what we get. Now that there's murderers. border patrol video. It's conservative media shows migrant children being dropped from the border wall. Other stories: frustrated caravan migrants being begin scaling U.S. border fence. All on video. Not an invasion, though. Migrant caravans leave bottles of urine, mountains of trash behind. The picture photo shows a bunch of migrants flipping off an American helicopter. It's Blackhawk. Kyle Rothenberger, who's on the site, tons of trash and clothes left behind by caravan migrants at the Tijuana border shelter this morning. Mexico police moved most of them about 15 miles away from the border yesterday to a different camp. The news comes as migrants are facing increased backlash and negative attitudes from local Mexican residents as the overwhelming majority of Mexican residents, 73%, hold negative views of migrants in a poll done by Mexican media. Rothenberg captured another video showing the migrants building a mountain of wet clothes and garbage at the Tijuana Boulder Shelter to block out the police. Another video captured by Rothenberg showed migrants who are apparently sick, spitting and coughing everywhere, writing a symp- sympathy a symphony, excuse me, of spitting and coughing here at the Tijuana border caravan. Officials say 60% have respiratory infections, three confirmed cases of TB. Four AIDS cases and widespread lice, but yeah, and there's something like 600 of them dead from the journey. But we just need to open the border up. Let's move on to hate tweets, even though a lot of hate from the media in our opening section.
12: Hate tweet of the day.
11: It's war. The views Joy Behar and Meghan McCain clashed big time live on the air Monday during what was meant to be a heartfelt tribute to President George H.W. Bush that turned into an ugly shouting match. Watch this.
0: And if I ever become a one-issue voter, it will be about pollution and the greenhouse effect. And, and Can the we fact focus that, on the president, yeah. please? I, well, I, just, I don't it, want to talk about Trump one well, uh, moment, so, of, We're honoring a great uh, excuse president. Excuse me a second, hat. please. I, I want to talk about But we're Honoring, but I'm not interested in your one-issue. I, what what well, I don't care you what you're what? interested Damn in. I'm talking. I don't care what you're interested in. We'll either. be right back. Okay. <laughs> okay.
11: Wow. All right. Senior correspondent Alicia Corals went to the ABC studios this morning to see what the ladies of The View had to say about their heated on-air fight. This really caught a lot of people off guard yesterday. So what
0: happened? It did. So, Jesse, obviously we know they have opposing political views, but yesterday it really came to a head. But it's what happened during commercial break that has people talking. Now, an insider tells DailyMail.com exclusively that when the cameras stopped rolling, Joy blew up in front of the studio audience and said that she's sick of Megan's entitled behavior. So as you said, I went to ABC this morning to try to get some reaction from the host. And we saw Megan, she was very polite. She was all smiles as she went in and said that she couldn't talk. Joy went to a separate entrance. So then today on the view on hot topics, they came out. It seemed like business as usual. They almost got through the segment without any dust up. And then at the end, Megan and Whoopi got into it over the usage of the word gun. So, Jesse, this thing is far from over. Never a dull moment with these women. We'll wait and see. I can
11: only imagine how weird and awkward that must have felt, just being on that set with all those different personalities based on what happened yesterday morning. All right, Alicia, great job. Thank you.
2: Now, I play that because that is Joy Behar. After that was over, I'm quitting this damn show. Entitled Bitch Went Too Far. Joe Behar got in a horrid confrontation with an entitled bitch on The View, screaming, Quit this damn show. In fact, 75-year-old Behar shouted her ultimatums. If they are not met, she won't return to ABC show. The live audience heard the entire catfight. We have all the details everyone's dying to know. It all started Monday morning, episode of The View. Joy Behar used what was supposed to be a tribute to Bush as an opportunity to trash Trump. To Behar praised the late president for signing the Clean Air Act as president. Behar turned the pra- praise in the club against Trump in a soapbox of her own left wing politics. This president that we have now is trying to unravel everything that Obama did, and if I ever become a one issue voter, it'll be about polo- pollution and the greenhouse effect. Joy ran before being cut off by Megan McCain, who jumped in. And McCain went bonkers. Not so much over the trashing of Trump, though. 34-year-old senator's daughter and perfectly fine with Trump bashing. McCain yelled at Behar, Can we focus on the president, please? I don't want to talk about Trump. We're honoring a great president's past. Well, that really rich coming from McCain, isn't it? Wasn't it McCain herself used her own father's funeral to trash Trump? The shrew of the view are a bunch of hypocrites, but I digress. This is what is really got ugly excuse me a second please i want to talk about we're honoring a great president who passed and i'm not interested in your one issue voting i don't care what you're interested in i'm talking well i don't care what you're interested either joy damn it will be quickly went to the commercial break but it's what happened during the break that everyone is talking about in fact as the camera moves away you can see joy and mccain lean into each other it happens very fast as the camera cuts to the break then the real fireworks started According to Daily Mail source, immediately after, while off air but still in front of studio audience, Behar blew up. Behar threw her hands in the air, yelled, "My God!" and get this bitch under control. If this shit doesn't stop, I'm quitting this damn show. Can't take this anymore. She fumed. Producers ran the stage and attempt to de-escalate the situation, but Behar continued. I've taught a lot of shit on this show. Tolerated a lot of shit on the show, but I'm at my wits end with this entitled bitch. Enough already. Enough already. I'm not playing nice any longer, Behar shouted, despite the studio audience being able to hear it all. Tuesday show, Behar started out seated at the table, but when GOP representative Steve Scalise joined the shrews, Big Mouth Behar wasn't surprisingly absent. It's quite possible Joy got heated once again and walked away after Abby Huntsman and Meghan McCain blew apart a premise of Fox News as president Trump's private network. Here's what I think. I want to say one thing about it. He's the only president of his own TV channel in history. Nixon didn't have that, so he has Fox News. And Fox will just back him, Bayard started. I would be careful about that, co-host Abby Huntsman warned. Let me finish that thought. His failure as a president means their failure as a station. They have everything interested in propping him up and backing his lies. So that's a very, very unusual position for someone to be in. Joy would soon be made to regret her assertion. Hutzman easily gave an example where Fox News wasn't easy and talked about Chris Wallace bashing him. That was Fox News. There are a number of folks that very much push back on him and not his camp that are great journalists. Then McCain similarly refused to meet Joy's eyes, said sarcastically, Brett Baier, Kennedy, Harris Faulkner, Shep Smith, I can go on and on and on. There are a lot of great people on Fox. The look of disgust on her face was apparent. Then during the following segment with Scalisi, Joy was gone. I bet the producers begged Loudmouth Behar to rejoin the show, which he did at the end. But it sure looks like it's just a matter of time before the com- former comedian quits. Well, why do I care? I don't. It doesn't matter if they get rid of Bear. there would be another fucking ignorant liberal to take her place. Well, locally, we had to put up with this. Get past that we
5: can disagree and still be cordial with one another. Um, you know, and just talk about things without going for each other's throats and protesting and... God forbid you say something a little bit wrong. You're racist, homophobic, Islamophobic, this, that, and the other. People need to calm down, get a little less politically correct. And I would say, you know, everybody, except, I'd say, screw that Joey Behar, bitch. Everybody. You You cannot say that. I mean, I apologize for that. I mean, lady. Um, listen, she's just got a different point of view than you do. Exactly. Oh, hey, maybe we'll go on and I'll hash it out with her. We'll talk about it. But anyway, exactly. Aside from joking, which I was, is go out and you know hash it out with people and have your have your uh, thoughts and ideas. But be able to still go have a beer with somebody yeah. and just say, you know, hey, we all love this country, and you know, let's have different ideas, but try to move forward and be more together. And realize at the
12: end of the day, we're all Americans. We are all Americans. How great is that? Well. Thank Thank you very much for inviting us here uh, you apologize for that right i did apologize for the language not the sentiment oh, oh well, we don't feel that way we apologize for both uh bob richie can now if you notice everybody in the
2: audience goes yeah she is a fucking bitch well he was the grand marshal for the nashville parade and because nashville's run by a bunch of I- ignore ice hate conservative liberals The mayor wouldn't go, and then the city pushed to get him kicked off, and they brought in the hero of the Waffle House shooting. Sorry, I had something stuck in my throat. So basically, the guy who owns Tootsies, which is a okay diner in the area, he had put up a lot of money, he said he wanted his goddamn money back, and he had Kid Rock come on a float anyway, because they didn't think that was a big deal. So let's break it down. Kid Rock calls Behar a bitch. The media establishment and Democrats freak the fuck out, but Joy Behar can call Meghan McCain an entitled bitch, and we don't have her fired for the network. Remember, this is the lady that disparaged all, disparaged all Christians, has had to apologize on the air very slightly before she, you know, could get back on the air, but she wasn't going to get fired. And we have Roseanne putting a picture of Planet of the Apes and losing her fucking show. That's my hate. I I don't like Kid Rock. Sure. Bomb, bomb, da-da-bomb, da-bang, da-bang, diggy, 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 boogie, jump, jump, the monkey, or whatever the fuck that song is. I probably wasn't monkey, but whatever. The reality is, he says it, he's admonished. She says ten times worse. And that was my point. But anyway, we move on. John Marlowe Cohen. Oh, but I thought the worst thing in the world was to call woman that word. I guess the view is going to need to cut ties, right? Like the parade Nashville did with Kid Rock. Leftism isn't about dialogue. It's about talking at and dictating to your contemporaries in order to change them to your liking. Quickly making pariahs of anyone who doesn't nod unquestionably. That's true. Kristen Gillibrand. Our future is female, intersexual, powered by our belief in one another, and we're just getting started. Somebody said, sorry, Theo and Harry, you're not your future because she has two sons. Other tweets. How does the last part work when you clearly don't believe in a large part of America as evidenced by the first two parts? Could happen sooner if so many unborn babies weren't being aborted. You support that practice, by the way. Man, she is really playing the woke SJW lane in 2020 Dem primary. Hard for me to see how this pans out for her. She's been at best the economic progress, third choice behind Bernie Warren, and will struggle to outdo non-white candidates appeal to non-white voters. She keeps on putting her hat in the ring. Looks like we got another graduate of the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez School of Economics. Meet Daniel Moscato, civil rights activist, writer, debater, pundit, podcast host, and transgender woman from the United States. After reading this hot take on $15 minimum wage, we totally get why she left economic expert off her list. Daniel Moscato. Daniela. Whatever, it's in between. But I can't afford to pay my employees 15 an hour. I'd go out of business. Then go out of business. If you can't afford to pay a living wage and make payroll, you shouldn't be in business. It's not your workers' responsibility to subsidize your shitty business. Fight for 15 Somebody just did one meme. Caution, moron alert. Which is so true. It was Pixie SS. That's who did it. Then you got Arnold Schwarzenegger going to the SOP. COP24, COP24, it's a climate change conference, in his speech, Arnold Schwarzenegger says he wishes he could travel back in time and terminate evil fossil fuels. The funniest thing is about the world, (laughs) how are you going to travel through time without fossil fuels? You need fossil fuels to travel through time. So you're not traveling anywhere, which is so true. We don't have hypocrisy section. I've been kind of getting away from that lately in stats because it kind of falls in there. But this is the perfect one. Max Boot and Matthew Dowd. Irony. Charles C.W. Cook, who's blocked me, wrote a hit piece on corrosion of conservatism, claiming nobody outside of a tiny self-involved clique cares a single whit about my views. Yet now NRO has run two more articles on me by Jonah NRO and Kevin Williamson. Meet the clique. Matthew Dowd, welcome to the team. Charles Cook has also blocked me. He only wants to engage in his corrupt echo chamber. They literally, he he said that. You're on ABC News, Matt Dowd. You have blocked anybody that disagrees with you. I didn't even say anything bad to you, and you blocked me. Go suck a dick. Bent Midler fantasized about Trump and his family hanged high... Or, excuse me, hang good and high. Actors and Broadway star Brett Miller fantasized about President Donald Trump and his family being hanged. Trump, 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 Bob Mueller marching. Trump, 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 and here's why Trump, 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 he's going to hang you. Hang the family good and high. She made it a song. I just want that to sit. Could you do that about Obama? I could do a search right now. I mean, I could do it right now. I could literally go on my Twitter and say, I can't wait to see Hillary Clinton hang good and high. I would be banned from Twitter. If I said it about Bill Clinton, the Secret Service would show the fuck up on my door. Here are some other recent tweets by bet. Women are are the N-word of the world. Raped, beaten, enslaved, married off, worked like dumb animals, denied education and inheritance, enduring the pain and danger of childbirth and life in silence for thousands of years. They are the most disrespected creatures on earth. Oh, really? Seems like you have a lot of power. You're on Twitter all the time. So your little analogy falls apart. Tom Arnold, watch out, right-wing. NRA suck up Sarah Palin with all the guns, domestic abuse, PTSD, and chemical abuse in your immediate family. You're likely to become another not-silliest but tragic gun statistic ever. By the way, she tweeted at me because she didn't get invited to another funeral. He further said this explains why 80% of gun owners shoot themselves or members of the family. A stat that Dana Loesch goes, yeah, no, that's not true. To our tweets of the day, John Cardelio. according to Mueller and Democrats, it was improper for the National Security Advisor Flynn to speak with Russian ambassador, but totally fine for private citizen John Kerry to meet with Iranians and undermine U.S. efforts. Let that sit for a second. Depending on what media you're reading, that's why I'm not covering it, it looks like this Mueller is what we thought it was. A Nothing nothing burger, but CNN and MSDNC still running on Chirons that there could possibly be something in there, but there's nothing so far. But the punishment to Flynn wasn't as extreme as they thought. And inherently within this investigation, we find a liberal donor who sexually harassed people and supposedly he's a pedophile, got off with no punishments, period, in a plea deal. And some of the left are starting to turn on him. So next podcast, I'll cover this stuff. Waiting for the dust to settle. With CNN and their chirons, you can never believe them anymore. So I don't know what the fuck is literally going on with this one. Other tweet of the day was, Grown-ups, Bush family wants no anti-Trump sentiment at funeral. No replay of McCain's service. They literally put out that tweet and told the world we're not doing this. This is about our father. It will never be part of the conversation, so don't do it. And I think it summed up the Bush family. In a nutshell, it summed it up. They're adults. My wife even said it. When you looked at that stage... And you saw the Bushes, you saw the Obamas, and you saw the Clintons. Adults were on the left. Trump, Obama, Clinton are children. They're just fucking children. They're such small people. And I think that's what you take away from H.W. You might not like this politics. You may not like Willie Horton. He was an adult. And we're sorely lacking adults. So I made that the tweet of the day. We're gonna do a music break and we're gonna go into a long extended news, social, media nuggets.
4: Poking at the media bubble, one podcast
12: at a time. Here's Tony Reed.
5: In this home that is me, the dead
8: are rolling over.
5: This this is this is something, man.
11: This is this is our generation, man. All you people are, we're all together, man, and it's groovy. And
7: dig yourselves, cause it's really groovy.
9: Now it's
4: time for news and social media nuggets—the crazy stuff that makes your host
1: lose
9: his mind. It's a whole new ball game on campus these days, and they call it PC. PC? Politically correct, and it's not just politics. It's everything. It's what you eat. It's what you wear. And it's what you say. If you don't watch yourself,
7: you can get in a buttload of trouble. For instance, we
3: have right see these girls?
7: Yep. No, you don't. Those are women. You call them girls? No, pop your figs.
12: Save the whales. Skates in the, the, military, the, military, the military, 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 military now. now. No, no, no. no, no, no. you this.
2: Military. Military. No, no, no. military corner. Massive earthquake caused damage to joint elf. Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson, where I was stationed in 1985, sustained a water leak Friday and only nece- uh, necessary personnel were permitted. Post on the base's Facebook page state they had to shut off water to the Elmendorf side of the facility due to leak and are assessing power availability across the site. They also reported all gates of the base are intact, but access to the base was limited to further notice. Service members from the area are accounting for personnel and conducting a damage assessment installation facilities from today's earthquake and are preparing to provide emergency support to base populace in the community if needed. Pacific Air Force Public Affairs wrote in an email, we're not expected to be impacted by the tsunami, but are trained and prepared. Regular updates will be posted on our Facebook page. Um, I had friends there, uh, family members there. It is horrible. A lot of people don't realize some of the farther um, areas, it's road, man. And the roads are gone. They're just gone. Down to Seward, you know, there's just a highway that goes to Elmondor or to Fairbanks. Um, it's going to take a while. That they're going to have problems, uh, especially with the fact that you know when the freezing temperatures come in. If they if they get a serious winter, which you know Anchorage area hasn't for a while, um, I mean to the standards they used to get, that con you know. Asphalt, concrete, it doesn't set. It takes a lot longer to set when cold temperatures. I remember being in an airplane circling for two hours just to land in Kimpo because they had fixed the airbase um there and the pavement wasn't ready for an airplane to come in. They thought it would be done, but the temperatures dropped, so D's everywhere. B fifty two squadron known for loo drawings on deployment. In the Air Force, the commander of the B-52 Strato, B-52 Strato, Strato Fortress Squadron. Gosh, I cannot read. Manoa Air Force Base, North Dakota was recently relieved of duty after sexually explicit and phallic drawings were found during an deployment to Al Uldi Air Base, Qatar. Attempted to stop his fellow airmen from drawing dicks everywhere, according to the command directed investigation into the matter. Lieutenant Colonel Paul Gosser was moved from command uh, November 27th, because penis drawings were discovered on a moving map display on the B-52's Combat Network Communication Technology cockpit software, as well as across bathroom stalls, vehicles, lodgings, facilities, and even dusty surfaces, according to this investigation. Inappropriate penis drawings and insensitive cultural phrases were even found on bombs and weapons before they were loaded in aircraft. In short, there was a phenomenon, redacted, of drawing dicks everywhere, the investigation said, Goose attempted to stop the rampant drawing. Investigators stated he wrote on the unit's whiteboard, "Stop drawing dicks," listing locations where they had found them. The commander ultimately acknowledged his failure to stop the problem, even though he stated he was unaware of the depth of content and the depth and content of drawings within the cockpit <laughs> software. Then there's this one, Marine Corps punishes two aviators over sky penises. So I'm laughing, but Jesus, what is wrong with you? Is this what happens? I mean, there was some homoerotic joking back when I was in, but we didn't draw dicks on everything and we sure the fuck didn't fly our plane in the shape of a dick. So maybe the gaze in the military concept has gone a little far. If we're all in love with dicks, new Apple discount gives military veterans 10% off. You can go online or in one of their stores, fill out the application, and you get 10% off your iPhones, pads, and shit that I can't stand. So if you're an Apple person and you're in the military, uh, it didn't say if it was vets. Oh, no, it is veterans. Oh, never mind. Online Military and Veteran Store homepage. So, you can get it. Meet Russia's new deadly assault rifle. Russian weapons manufacturer Kalishnikov Concern has unveiled their new AK-308 at the Army 2018 Expo. At first glance, the AK-308 appears to be rebrand of the Kalishnikov AK-12 with some design elements from the AK-103, but its tame appearance belies that makes the AK-308 one of the Kalishnikov's most ambitious products of a decade. It houses 7.62 times 51 millimeter NATO rounds. Since the Second World War, have produced over 20 assault rifles, of those all but three have employed Soviet-Russian-made ammunition. The AK-101, the AK-102, with the 556-45 NATO rounds were Kalishnikov's first foray into exporting a rifle with NATO standard ammunition. The AK-108 it also made the five point five six times forty five millimeter rounds likewise generated little interest for major informed buyers. the 108 was part of the late AK-100 series line 107-109 that was plagued by recoil inconsistencies, heaviness, and needlessly complicated design. Two decades later, Kalashnikov is trying again. The AK-308 uses different NATO rounds, 762 by 51 as opposed to 556 by 45 millimeter that trades more weight and recoil for better range and penetration capability. The 308 is marginally longer and heavier than the AK-12. It incorporates many of the AK-12's improvements, including a collapsible buttstock that looked kind of sexy and redesigned Gas tube. The AK 308 uses firearm frame based off the RPK 74M, a design choice meant to increase durability. So, coming to a terrorist near you. We're going to go into our college crazy, and before you hear the cool background music, I just wanted to play this soundbite that sums up colleges. Basically, you should get jail time if you misgender. Okay, how many genders are there?
8: Why should there be a enough- number?
9: because if you don't have sociological standards, then chaos, which is what you have. Because people will say 67, people will say have 84 genders Why is it a matter of people like, why is this? Because people are forcing me to use words that have that, 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 that no biological meaning. In California, you can go to prison if you misgender somebody. Oh yeah, you're okay with that. Yes. Oh, okay. So you think, I think, it, that you so you think if I misgender someone... Okay, so if I go up to somebody and I misgender them, I can face prison time and you're okay with it. Oh, my okay, God. Okay, that's the problem.
3: The problem you're is... You're forcing speech. Is that... Okay, so if you went up to me and you're like, you're a man.
9: If
3: you came up to me and you told me... I don't want to assume you're your, your
9: gender, so I don't know how you tell me
3: Okay, well, I advise by she, her
9: pronouns.
7: Okay. All right. <laughs> but and
9: if I say him, I could face prison time in California, and you're okay with that. That's forcing speech. That is a form of fascism. That's the problem.
2: And we start off with what we talked about last time. UC Berkeley student government unanimously approves resolution to fund Migrant Caravan. They're going to give 1500 bucks to the migrants. Latino students warn student senators that voting no on the resolution would be ignorant and violent.
12: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Giving away money for that. Then they'll bitch they don't have money for their Latino causes. Hmm. Rutgers professor fume over suspected illegal DUI arrest. Let's do that one more time. Illegal DUI arrest. Rucker University police arrested a suspected illegal alien for driving under the influence allowing ICE to detain them subsequently. More than 100 Record facility faculty members wrote a letter stating any illusion that Records is a place where individuals will not be targeted on basis of immigration status is shattered once representatives collaborate with ICE. Just happened locally, a guy killed a woman, DUI, went to the hospital, because Nashville police won't work with ICE, he escaped. He was already wanted for burglary, armed robbery, and a bunch of other shit in Kentucky. This guy's a real, real winner, winner, chicken dinner, illegal, and Nashville just let him walk away. Of course, they played it off, hospital security, everybody. Oh, it was us. University's racial justice definition, eerily similar to socialism. Southern Connecticut State University has created a syllabus for racial justice, which provides a definition of racial justice. The document defines racial justice as a process where power and resources are redistributed so that people of color have equal access, opportunities, and treatment, leading to equitable outcome for all. Yeah, sounds like socialism. Holy shit. Princeton students complain about white peers invading POC places. The Princeton Center for Equality and Cultural Understanding features cultural affinity spaces for designed ethical ethical, racial groups. While each space is associated race or ethnicity, every student, regardless of identity, can go to these spaces because it's a fucking free country. Some students weren't happy. I went once. I was a white guy there. I left. These affinity spaces are areas within the CAF building intended for students to gather, study, socialize. Based on minority status, CAF as black, Latinx, Middle Eastern affinity spaces, among others. While each space is associated race or ethnicity, once again, everybody can go. CAF is a space intended to support students of color on campus, and Gabriella Carter, a presenter for the Woke Wednesday study group, the video cut to Carter sitting in the black affinity space, where she explained that non-black students occupy the room, essentially pushing out the black students who this room is intended for. It kind of makes the black students feel like they're a visitor in the space that's supposed to be theirs. Yep, so then transitioned to interviews with students. Princeton student Saran Torre indicated that she works at CAF and sometimes vid- visits the visits the affinity spaces. I've only ever seen like actual black people sitting in the black affinity spaces like three times, she told Woke Wednesdays. Every other time it's always like someone that's not black, or someone's like usually a white male. Torre suggests that while she would like to cry in the Black Affinity Room. She feels uncomfortable if individuals of other races are present. If I want a space to cry where I feel comfortable, I want to go to the Black Affinity Room. But if you're there, I feel uncomfortable. I went once. Uh, it was a white guy there. I left. Prison student Tamori blah blah blah, said on the podcast. I don't feel right. Like this place for African Americans, there was a white guy. It's like, ironic asked what Princeton could do to better give students a color of the space, ah, blah, 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 suggested the school community while students of identities that do not match those of certain affinity rooms should not study there. Princeton student Rod Eric Joseph claimed that individuals whose identities conflict with that space have in the past locked those whose identities do match up with the affinity space out of the area. White students ought to feel entitled to certain spaces on this campus. So that sense of entitlement does trickle over to the Carl A. Field Center even though most of Prospect Avenue the street where CAF is located and best known as the home to Prince's Eating Clubs is quite white serving. Teaser said that you have to be either really ignorant very vindictive to occupy that space. What does it say when they say I don't feel comfortable around white people? We have a word for that racist. But you know, it's the new world. Princeton group Nix's misogynistic Disney song from repertoire. A Princeton University columnist bashed in a cappella group performance of a song from Disney's The Little Mermaid during which the group instructs a male and female member to kiss. Daily Princetonian writer Noah Wolstein termed kiss the, a girl. A misogynistic song rife with themes of toxic masculinity. As a result, the group stopped singing it. Yeah. yeah. Kiss the girl. Yeah. Okay. University suspends fraternity members over constantly pro- constitutionally protected speech. I'm going to break it down. This is Bowling Green. They said they could not dress as cholos for Halloween and we're going to suspend them Until they realized they couldn't do that, and they had to retract everything. They basically just chastised them that you should not wear anything that has to do with the Latino culture. And this one is just a doozy. Yale now sells abortion drugs from a vending machine. As reported yesterday in the Yale Daily News, the university student government has voted to install a vending machine... In a centrally located residential college for Plan B, contraceptives can be functioned in certain cases as an abortion patient. The so-called wellness-to-go vending machine will be installed in the Sillman Good Life Center, signaling death not only of incipient human life, but also irony. The drug entered the public consciousness in 2014, when the Obama administration attempted to force the little sisters of the poor Catholic religious order to fucking hand it out. While that is, uh, it's the Plan B. Defenders insist the drugs does not induce abortions, but rather merely prevents pregnancy. While that is true, much of the time, if Plan B is taken during the two-day window after a surge of luteinized hormones prepares the ovary to release an egg, pregnancy may occur, but the ovary will not produce enough progesterone to allow the embryo to survive, thus killing it. Hmm. That's our culture. Fast food abortion now. Yeah, I'd like to get a Whopper and a Plan B pill. And give me a side of abortion. Don't let college stamp out your rights during Christmas. Colleges have banned Christmas trees, wrapped gifts, non-religious Christmas decorations, and even the word Christmas. The Pacific Justice Institute has published a guide that may be of use for students looking to challenge anti-Christmas administrators. A professor has called Christmas a patriarchal construct, and one college even renamed its annual Christmas event to Hot Toddy Holiday in the name of inclusivity. There is zero constitutional authority for the notion that we have to use euphemisms like winter break. Legally, how far can the public colleges and university go to stifle free speech? Are these practices protected under the law, or is it a violation of the First Amendment? One legal resource by the Pacific Justice Institute provides the answer. Referring to Christmas Q&A, the document serves as a guide to provide detailed answers to frequently asked questions during Christmas. And the answers are applicable to holidays like Easter and Thanksgiving. Euphemisms have no constitutional authority. Christmas trees are allowed on public grounds. In the Supreme Court's landmark Lynch v. Donnelly case, the court analysis of City's holiday display regarded the tree as being secular. Christmas literature can be distributed on college campuses, and the right to free speech includes literature, gifts, and invitations. Yes. So, fight back! But UNC Charlotte, they said, fuck it, we're going to host a sextival! That's right, X-E-X-T-I-V-A-L. With a not safe for work workshop, University of North Carolina Charlotte hosted the event on Tuesday titled Sextable. You know this is always in southern states because the liberals are trying to overtake any normalcy to try to get people to vote. Live! Featured on the College Center for Wellness Promotion website, the event includes several sex-related workshops. It was from the Research on Women's Health Interest Group. Peer Leader Educator Advocating for Sexual Education, Please, and Schools, College of Human and Human Services. Some of the workshops were right down, you know, the holiday lane. This is just the stuff you want your kids, your young adult kids, to be learning in college. Fluid bonding, partner massage, Bring a Buddy, Level Up, Tricks for How to Give Better Head, but fun for everyone. Safe, pleasurable anal play and sexpo mode. Give me the lube. The symposium started with the event titled Sci- Sexy Science Fair and Sex in the Community. Followed by those incredible workshops. There were other ones though. Condoms like you've never seen. Na- Namaste tight. Pelvic floor yoga bring a map uh what you don't know can hurt you feminine hygiene all aces an intro to asexuality wrap it up safely chest binding and then butt fun sexuality crafts make your own condom blow pop or vulva art and up your relationship game with the ppsat teen leadership council Woohoo! Merry Christmas! What the fuck? <laughs> mm. But there are some positives. Stanford University was given a bunch of shit because they had too many flags by a bunch of intolerant liberals. So they brought back a bigger flag. That's a whole story I had, but I'm just going to abbreviate it. Stick it to them. Students believe conservatives are evil, inhuman, a UW study finds. Many left-leaning students at the University of Washington harbor feelings that Republicans and conservatives are evil, inhuman, and not even a person, according to a new study led by a team of UW psychological professors. Sounds like they were listening to Obama. The study, Improving Relationships Among Conservatives and Liberals on College Campus, set out to do just that, bring students from opposing sides... Of the political divide together. The results published November 10th in the Journal of Contextual Behavioral Science should raise worry for any parent with a conservative kid. Here at UW, or predominantly liberal campus, a John Kathleen Cantor, if you got a fucking hyphen name, you're a douchebag, a professor at UW, and a study leader, lead researcher on Tuesday. But we have a decent number of students who come from small towns and rural places who are feeling politically marginalized and isolated. That's problematically problematic he said so candor designed and held a four-hour experimental workshop of 20 students after two hours of putting students through team building activities designed to foster empathy and compassion the workshop turned political this was intentional students were then instructed to discuss their political views but in a personal way for example one second amendment supporter told the story of how he hunted deer with his grandfather growing up to explain the origins of gun rights liberal students in turn also told stories before and after the workshop, the UW students were asked to what extent they agreed with the statements like, most conservatives are unsophisticated rednecks, most liberals are motivated in part by their hatred for America, this country would be a better place than most conservatives packed up and moved out, and etc. The questions were designed to gauge students' feeling, feeling, or of political machina- machinasium, don't know how to say the word. Basically when you demonize somebody to get your way. Fortunately in the hours at the workshop students' feelings on this decrease. but when re-surveyed a month later the students, especially liberals who reported stronger feelings in the first place basically went back to hating their political opponents. Liberal beliefs that beliefs that conservatives are evil only temporarily improved. Future research could explore whether this is directed towards conservatives' increased conservative minority stress etc. etc. Schools like dub public institutions, we want students to feel comfortable, regardless of whether they're conservative or liberal, but go fuck yourself. Yeah. That did not surprise me. That's the left's whole... That's how they get into office. They demonize their opponent and say that they're evil, racist. So, why would it be surprised? Des Moines Register, breaking, Drake University official last week, said, Ram admitted to writing one of the five notes found on campus... She also reported receiving at least one of the notes. This is once again one of those hate and call to unities. That's a total fucking lie. She made up, this is Drake, hashtag, went to Twitter and said she got a letter. Dear Porch Monkey, we've decided that you're no longer wanted at Drake on our campus at all. Which means you need to leave or else... It's a fucking lie. Then there was the Grio reported a second incident of racist graffiti targeted black and Latino people at Goucher College in Maryland. In this uh, they put out this is the second time this month that hate message targeting people of color appeared at Goucher College. Then Baltimore County Police Department makes arrest of two incidents of threatening racial bi- bias graffiti. Twenty-one-year-old student Finn Arthur charged and held without bail. He had put swastikas in the KKK, and he's black. So there you go. Mainstream media didn't cover any of these fake stories, or they—they they didn't even want to cover the news thing very much. They just wanted to say, "Well, it's true."
9: They—they
2: uh, they hung people in Mississippi. Like a hundred fucking years ago, but okay. Asian American group shuts down Asian American comic. This one was hilarious. He's a writer for SNL. Got on the stage. They stopped him and said that he was stereotyping. Yeah.
7: Hmm.
2: Female Harvard student with mega hat finds roommate, searched her room for guns. Then this happened. Female Harvard University graduate student who asked, had a mega hat and legally owned guns in her room was asked by her apartment owner to move out after her roommate reported searching through her room and found guns. Leela Purney had been living in her apartment with six roommates since September. She told the Free Beacon, "A few weeks ago, I came back to my apartment from a weekend trip. Which was confronted by one of my." T- Roommates who asked if I had guns in the house after being told far too many lies to count. My roommate finally admitted that they searched my closet under my bed and all my drawers in pursuit of finding the guns. When I asked them why they were in my room to begin with, they each came up with completely contradicting stories, none of which made sense. But one comment stuck me in particular. We saw that you had a mega hat and you come from Alabama. So we just kind of assumed that you had something. I asked why they didn't just call me and ask me before intruding. One of the girls responded that fear took over her body and she felt compelled to search my room until she could find proof. Fear came over my body of an inanimate gun sitting somewhere in a room with nobody to pull the trigger. Hmm. One of the roommates emailed Dave Lewis, president of Avid Management, arguing that Prairie left her guns unlocked. As we understand it from speaking with Lila, the firearms are all properly licensed and permitted, but are kept loaded and unloaded, unlocked. We all discussed her right to keep legal firearms in a lawful manner, although we all discussed our discomfort about having firearms in the house, which we in turn hope she respects. We discussed with Lila that all of us are uncomfortable with having firearms in the house and that their presence causes anxiety and deprives us of the quiet enjoyment of the premise to which we are entitled Oh, really? Lewis responded with an email in which he stated by pointing out the local captain of the police department determined Prairie had indeed kept her locks, guns locked up, writing, I consulted my attorney and have had several conversations today with Captain Donovan of the Smotherville Police Department, who at my request and Lila's invitation this afternoon was allowed to inspect the premises and storage of the firearms in question and determined that they are being safe and legally stored in a lock and key. In addition, the captain affirmed that Leela is in compliance with state laws and his interviews scheduled him on December 11th as part of her permanent application to possess the firearms in her home. But Lewis then added, That being said, it's clear the rest of the roommates are extremely uncomfortable with the ideas of firearms being kept in the household, and difference in philosophy and lifestyle has led to an uncomfortable level of tension and stress for the entire household. Consequently, since it's clear that Leela wanted to keep her firearms, it would be best for all parties if she finds another place to live. Pretty common the Beacon, what I find uncomfortable is coming home to find out that six people I barely know went into my bedroom without permission and went through every single one of my drawers, without any regard to my privacy whatsoever. My landlord's email, though carefully crafted, shows tremendous prejudice against my right to legally have firearms. She explained that she had told her roommates that one reason for her owning firearms was that she had been in a physical abusive relationship, she said. Nobody has bothered to question, well... Why do you want to have protection? Could it be because you experienced something where you need to feel protected? According to The Beacon, when Perny and her father rejected Lewis's request that she move out in the middle of studying for finals, Lewis responded by saying his request was based strictly on practical and not ideological terms. He then warned if the other roommates moved out, Perny would have to pay the rent. Louis emailed Pernie and her father. The other roommates were move out. Leela would need to find roommates to share the place foot the entire $6,000 a month rent here herself. Obviously, it'd be much easier for the others to stay and just fill one room, and I'm confident where there's happened that the remaining housemates release Leela from any further possibility under the lease. And that's why I proposed what I did. Pretty concluded, I'm still ever much so much... So, being threatened out of my apartment, either I leave and incur moving expenses, or my roommates move and I incur their rent expenses, doesn't seem right. Not only is this a blatant violation of my privacy, but it's also a violation of my rights. Yeah. Let anybody else who's not a progressive go through somebody's possessions and see how it's reported in our media. This wasn't reported. They invaded her privacy and broke into her room. Unbelievable. In reply to last week's craziness by HuffPo that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is just horrible, some comedy came out of it like this. Rudolph actor fires back against charges. Film is bigoted, sexist. They must all be Scrooge's. Rudolph actor critics of the film are like Scrooge. After a week of reports of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was sexist, bigoted, and abusive, an original actor of the classic film has had enough. Kareen Conley, who voiced the doll in 1964 Children's Movie, said the flap about bullying in the film misses the point. Certainly, in the show, everyone is reconciled happy at the end of the movie, she told TMZ, and let's hope in today's society the things people are bullying about can also be rectified. <clears throat> the school coach occurs bullying video caption: One scene, for example, shows Rudolph's coach saying, oh, yeah, well, we're doing it. Conley said, sometimes people cry when they learn she was one of the voices in the film because it touched so many people. While the film does contain bullying, even Santa berates Rudolph's dad for something that some was simply born with. She says it all works out in the end. That, to her, is what mattered. Mm-hmm. But, it continues. Cleveland radio station pulls... Christmas date rape song. Baby, it's cold outside. Fox 8 reports, a Star 102 Midday Host said in an interview, people might say, oh, enough with the Me Too, but if you really put that aside and listen to the lyrics, it's not something I would want my daughter to be in that kind of situation. Cleveland's Rape Crisis Center President and CEO Sondra Miller said her organization supports the decision to pull the song. I will play it 100 times. Jesus, you frickin' 20-somethings was a tweet stop enough of the pc i am anti-censorship i so miss the days of richard pryor red fox george carlin all the comedy comedy greats that have left us if you want banning take it to places that i have banning which i thought was true and then conservative sites went all in the racist sexist <clears throat> and transphobic undertones of frosty the snowman this week, blah, 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 we learned about it. We also learned that Charlie Brown and the classism of the Grinch. I'm grateful that we are having these conversations, and I certainly cannot imagine a more pertinent subject to be discussing. finding it deeply frustrating that so many people expose their children to these holiday-themed fairy tales, without ever stopping to consider the problematic ideas and images they contain. It is no surprise that hate crimes skyrocket during the Christmas season, according to the statistics that I saw in a dream last night. It does, however, shock me that no one has yet noticed the most racist, sexist, and transphobic Christmas cartoon, Frosty. Frosty is so fraught with discriminatory messages that it makes Rudolph look like an innocent child's tale of comparison. Indeed, Frosty is straightforward Nazi propaganda, as any clear inspection of the story reveals. Let's begin. Racism. Now, let's not be ridiculous. I would never call Frosty racist just because the snowman is white. There's nothing in principle wrong with featuring a white character in a story. White characters can even be entirely necessary if the plot involves, say, a serial killer, or a rapist, or a devious factory boss dumping poisonous chemicals into a river upstream from an orphanage. These are all roles that can and must be filled by whites. But what makes Frosty problematic is that he is not a serial killer, but a jolly happy soul. Who likes to laugh and play? The obvious insinuation here is that minorities are neither jolly nor happy nor inclined to laugh and play. Understand, once again, this is all satire. But the racism goes much deeper. Frosty, we are told, can only survive in the cold and snowy environments. He's a creature made of snow. This is made of whiteness. Who belongs in the snow? This is among other white people. Frosty the Snowman, turns out, is nothing more than a polemic against desegregation. Oh my god, I never even thought of that. Sexism. Again, there's nothing on the surface wrong with the fact that Frosty is a snowman. There was a wonderful children's movie a couple years ago about a murderous psychopath called the Snowman Killer. In that context, it made perfect sense that the character was a man. The film was quite wholesome because it drew from necessary connections between masculinity and violence. But Frosty sends the opposite message. It is grounded in an outmoded, masco-centric point of view where anything magical, anything wonderful, anything happy or joyful must automatically be male. Too true. Transphobia. Frosty's gender was assumed based solely on the fact that he wore a top hat. In a similar way, an infant's gender is assumed based solely on his genitalia, which is just an arbitrary and fundamentally meaninglessly meaningless as a top hat. Frosty Snowman erases the LGBTQIEIO community by refusing to honestly grapple with the protagonist's gender identity. This is a massive misopportunity when you consider the fact that Frosty had no sex organs at all. He is, in fact, an androgynous and sexless. A more worthwhile and honest Christmas cartoon would explore this fact, but Frosty the Snowman bypasses the whole issue, choosing instead to reinforce their archaic binary paradigm. There are plenty of other reasons to be offended. Frosty is a climate change denier. Frosty's top hat symbolizes the power of the moneyed class. His eyes were made out of coal, signifying a rejection of renewable energy resources. We could go on for days, but I think we got
12: enough here to work with.
2: Yes. And then another article, (coughs) Woke Watching, Christmas Classic, Why Let Them Have It. HuffPo, have all the fun. All right, Tim and Fair for Progressive is sadly lacking. The network networks have been notoriously cautious about greenlighting the 12 genders of Christmas, while nobody will even fund Frosty and the magic morning after pill. <laughs> so lef, Lefty's got to break down every show and dog it. The list of issues addressed was not exhaustive unless I missed someone pointing out Mrs. Claus thin-shaming her husband, Eat Papa, Eat, whoever heard of a Skinny Santa. But the effort was a reminder that we live in an age of woke watching where TV shows like Friends from the 90s are considered reactionary. And why should we not apply that same scrutiny to claymation classics? If we're honest, so many of the holiday specials that have traditionally aired in the run-up to Christmas are rife with homophobia, racism, gender stereotypes. Consider 1965 Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. Not one character acknowledged the constitutional problems with staging a Christmas play in a public school auditorium to say nothing of the use of Linus' explicit Christian propaganda moment. And Don't get me started on the fascist undertones of Rudolph's shiny New Year. <clears throat> so let's turn our attention to another holiday special, The Year Without a Santa Claus. It would be nice to say that in the decades since Rudolph was released... Children's Christmas specials had evolved with the times, but the year without a Santa Claus reflects none of the social progress of those tumultuous intervening years. It is a work of pure misplaced nostalgia that ignores social economics and racial power imbalances and does nothing to further discussion of environmental issues. First and foremost, the year without a Santa Claus, cavalier treatment of climate Anthropomorphization can be a valuable teaching tool, and we applaud the depiction of Mother Nature as a strong, autonomous Earth Mother. But trivializing the battle for climate as two selfish, bickering brothers hides the dire consequences of global warming. The implicit moral equivalence between warming, the heat miser, and healthy, cooler climate, snow miser, is the height of irresponsibility. The mere suggestion that we can compromise with the greatest threat to everything in the history of everything is at base climate change denial and should be prosecutable. At the very least, we should consider whether it's dangerous and different to planetary cataclysm is appropriate viewing for children. He then breaks down Southtown and how they didn't show enough rednecks and cops and ends the piece with it speaks volumes that Rankin and Bass thought of nothing of having a character a policeman, the voice of authority, exhibits so much racism and homophobia in one scene. Tell me funny suits isn't a dog whistle for conservative Christian. Let the children holiday specials of yesterday stay in yesterday. We need forward-thinking progressive fare that reflects the world we're trying to leave our kids. Specials like I saw daddy fucking Santa Claus buster the long-eared winter solstice donkey or a christom christmas condom for caroline and i am not even going to be surprised when they do those things because they will new york times did a piece this week hanukkah is a celebration of religious fundamentalism and violence and i won't read the last one which is a great article look it up it is on the daily wire happy holidays is not about inclusion it's about suppression Christmas is the reason for the season. And they show all these good wellers doing the... Well, there's a whole bunch of other things going on through it. But, yeah, yeah, no. No, we're not going to do it. Then there was the biggest one ever. Eric Sprakle. A psychologist. The virgin birth story is about an all-knowing, all-powerful deity impregnating a human teen. There is no definition of consent that would include that scenario. Happy holidays. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's real. It was retreated like a thousand times. So now Jesus' birth is... Date rape. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's just fucking wrong. Just fucking just wrong. Then we move on to PETA. They started a thing this week, bringing home the bacon. Idioms referencing meat may become obsolete as veganism rises. Given that fiction often reflects a real-world event and social issues, it may very well be that down the line, powerful meat metaphors are eschewed. This was a real thing, whole articles on it, because PETA put out, words matter, and as our understanding of social justice evolves, our language evolves around it. Here's how to remove speciism, that's a fucking word I guess, from your daily conversation. Speciesism. Stop using anti-animal language. Instead of kill two birds with one stone, say feed two birds with one scone. Instead of be the guinea pig, say be the test tube. Instead of beat a dead horse, say feed a fed horse. Instead of bring home the bacon, bring home the bagels. And take the bull by the horn should be... Doomed and replaced with Take the flower by the thorns. Yeah, that's that's real. That's real shit now. You will find you're going to get banned on Twitter or you'll lose your job because you said, well, I'm going to go kill two birds with uh, one stone and go out there and get these two sales today. Oh, no, 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 you, you have to leave. You talked about killing... A, and B, we don't kill birds in this company. Yeah, you know, it's happening. Other lefty shit. Cheyenne Faye. This one went crazy. I don't understand it. Ed Sheeran is 27-year-old man. The fact we've enabled him to feel it's okay to dress like this at all, let alone next to Beyonce, really boils my piss. It's a huge thing on Twitter because he was wearing jeans. Skinny jeans. He's a fucking hipster. What are you... What are you you're upset about that? People reminded her how fucking narrow-minded she was. Then Into Magazine, a gay magazine, trans misogyny, heterosexual pride, and blackface, Ariana Grande's thank you next video is surprisingly anti-queer. Queerness, in this case, is uses nothing more than a dry comedic, comedic prop. Ariana, at this point, not only responds to rumors about her sexuality just once, but twice in the video. She emphasizes her heterosexuality at a point of pride and empowerment. We need to stop labeling straight women as gay icons because they give us the bare minimum representation. Visibility is not enough, especially when it, it can have such a negative impact on our lives. A video will, you know, from a music audience, puts just a negative impact on your weird shit. Okay. The video features queer trans and POC characters as props while centering one of the world's biggest pop stars in blackface. Editor's note. We've decided to remove the author's name from this piece after an editorial team was alerted that a high volume of death threats were being made against the writer as a result of the opinion represented in this piece. Into is a place for varying opinions for LGBTQ people around the world or remain to be the place, but these opinions never warrant violence. And then a writer's own life could be potentially at stake. We must take the necessary steps to ensure their safety. Whole stories. LGBTQ site writer calls Ariana Grande's new video anti-queer removes byline after death threats when a writer's own life could potentially be at stake. Blah, 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 blah. The world lost it. Because they look at this girl as a gay icon, even though she's not gay. I'm proving a point here. Small people. We have such small people in this country that you freak out about an article written by. But, you know, it it happens for everybody. I, I disparaged Aaron Rodgers. I think he's not being a very good quarterback. I think he got paid a billion dollars, and I don't think he deserves that billion dollars. I've had people call me idiots, uneducated, a motherfucker. They chased me around the internet for saying number 12 isn't upholding his end of the deal. Yeah, But the internet's a horrible place. Lutheran pastor melts down Christian Christian purity rings to create a vagina statue. There was a time when pro-abortion movement was merely pro-choice. They preached tolerance and diversity in an attempt to welcome other opinions. Those days are over. Today's pro-abortion movement is all about hating on pro-life Christians or anyone who dares defy their abortion at all costs mindset. Instead of embracing other viewpoints and encouraging society to do the same, today's pro-abortion movement is all about making fun and ridiculing the views of those who take a different perspective. Now a feminist pastor is making fun of Christians who take a serious decision to to be abstinent from sex until marriage and to remain faithful to the partner in marriage. This so-called pastor is melting down the purity rings to create a statue glorifying a vagina. This sick and sacrilegious act turns something beautiful and honorable to something disgusting instead of honoring an important decision that respects a relationship. It just worships female body parts. In Denver, Colorado, a liberal Lutheran pastor named Nadia Bowles Weber is calling on women to send her their Christian purity rings so that she can make herself a vagina statue. The Christian Post reports that Bob founder founding pastor of Denver's House for All Sinners and Saints, announced on Twitter her massive art project to create a golden idol to female genitalia in protest of evangelical purity. She's a pastor. I thought false idols was something. I don't know. I remember reading the Bible once, twice, a few times. Wow. Grinder app president says marriage is between a man and woman. And then Grinder app president says he supports gay marriage. Boom. End story. That was pretty quick. The Pope Francis is now a homophobe because he didn't support gay marriage. The media went batshit crazy over it. But they tell us all the time he's the best guy ever. Don't they? Oh, it's climate change. Got it. Okay. Ben and Jerry's. This is peak 2018, and it sums up all those that hate the middle of the country. Today we launch Pecan Resist. This flavor supports groups creating a more just and equitable nation for all of us and who are fighting President Trump's regressive agenda. Learn more and take action here. Some of the tweets, it tastes like lost elections. And I said, how small do you have to be? To believe you can sell ice cream and you're going to change the country. Yeah. Dicks! Well, they're still hitting it. It's worse now. They've removed everything as we talked before, but they've taken a 5% hit. And they've had to tell all their stockholders and the board of directors, it's not looking good. So, that was actually reported by J.P. Morgan and
12: CNBC.
2: So, it's not from art liberals, your anti-gun thing ain't working. Two more crimes. Indian corpse smuggler arrested with 50 human skeletons in his luggage. If that's not horrible, this is. Mother fakes daughter's death to collect donations for memorial service and use the money. The problem is the girl was alive in a different state. And she's going to jail. 300 pound woman guilty of crushing boyfriend. A woman has pled guilty to killing her boyfriend by stabbing him, hitting him, and then just sitting on
12: him. And he suffocated out. That's not good.
2: And as reference, the potato peeler. This... All males out there. Go ahead and press your legs together because this isn't pretty. Conway, South Carolina, female rape victim charged after stalking attacker and stripping the skin off his gentiles with a potato peeler. Sweet mother of God. A 37-year-old woman in Conway, South Carolina, who was a victim of a rape earlier this year, has been charged for a revenge attack when she stalked a rapist and then assaulted him with a potato peeler stripping the skin off as genitals, The woman, who could not be named for legal reasons, was raped by a 56-year-old local man earlier this year at her home in Conway. However, the man was never charged with the rape after the woman refused to testify against him. We begged her to change her mind, but she said she didn't want him to get locked up in prison where he, could, he would have a comfortable life. Unable to bring the man before court without the victim's testimony, they reluctantly let her go because there was no DNA or anything. As it turns out, the woman had a good reason for not wanting the rapist to be sent to jail. With him still out in the open, she had a much better chance of getting her revenge on him. Investigators believe she began stalking the man and following him around on a daily basis. Early yesterday morning, it is alleged the woman broke into the man's property and knocked him out before restraining him in the bed with the cable ties. She is then said to have taken a potato peeler and used it to remove the skin from his penis and testicle. The woman then reported a crime to authorities and called paramedics to treat him. I still ended up treating him better than he treated me. He got exactly what he deserved. Instead of spending a few months in jail, he ended up getting hurt just like I did. And now he'll never be able to rape
12: anyone again.
2: The male side of me just wants to cringe at the pain that that would be. But the human side of me is, yeah, he had that shit coming. So, there it is. Two! Two! are Lighter Fair and Black Rifle Coffee. I'm going to have to narrate it because they didn't put all of it in audio, but it's awesome. So, wait a minute. We'll do a Mama Bear crushing a school board on the way out. Then we'll do Black Rifle Coffee. I think this is awesome. This is in Georgia, and she's saying what most of us are starting to say because we're just done with the indoctrination of our kids.
7: Deep,
0: deep concerns. First and foremost, Sacramento is out of control. Yep. It is out of control, it seems to think that it can indoctrinate our children with their leftist agenda. We as parents are not victims. We are part of we the people. Yes. We the people can decide what we teach our kids when it comes to sex, when it comes to relationships. It is not the job yes. of the Board of Education. Right. 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 Their job, and let me tell you, they're not doing a very good job of it, <laughs> is
2: reading... Okay, our Black Rifle Coffee tweet... How seriously, how to seriously make, like, the perfect pumpkin spice latte? I will narrate. Acquire breast milk is step one. Step two, procure a pumpkin. Stab the shit out of it. Throw it. Play a sad movie. Collect tears from Spouse. Add liberal arts degree. Step six, blend and flip it off. Acquire drinkware, your wife's boot. Shove it in there. Add black rifle coffee. Add basic wardrobe. It's straight at bottoms up. It is hilarious. The breast milk, of course, pissed my wife off. She didn't think that was funny, but I thought that shit was funny. So that's our inappropriate fuck you to the world. This was tweeted this week, and I thought it was funny, As we always end on a serious note. Brian Seltzer, Zucker, I think that our job in CNN is to tell the truth. The problem is, in this day and age, I do understand that sometimes when you're pro-truth, it comes off as anti-Trump. That's how he's explaining his chirons that say oh, nobody liked him there and da 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 The entire world said this is a disingenuous claim to be pro-truth. CNN is pro-revenue. The truth is useful to CNN only insofar as it attracts and keeps viewers mostly liberals. And I was going to read an article but I'm not going to because we've gone kind of long today. It literally is by Was it? Ryan Reynolds? Uh, Who wrote this? Um, Glenn Reynolds, humanity is better off without Twitter. And I think that is a spot-on assessment of what's wrong with our country right now. Twitter, social media, people have lost the ability to talk to each other. All we've done is further entrench our own ideals of what the world's supposed to be. We don't interact, which was the intent. And I did air quotes of what, you know, these founders of all these social media sites said we were going to do. And when you break it down, it has made the world worse. It's just a worse place to be in. People are worse to each other. They're rude. They're mean. I think. If we actually ban social media and put people back to where we were, the country was less divisive. It was still politically divisive, but you didn't say as mean things to each other. You just didn't do the stupid that we see on a daily basis. And I thought, maybe that's the holiday thing. This holiday, don't go on social media. Or try for a month. No social media. Don't go to Twitter, Don't go to your Facebook and see how you are. I am a Facebook user. I post pictures of the holidays, the fish I catch. I had a great fishing day the other day. Um, We did a great junking last weekend, and I got some really good antiques, including a color wheel for those tinsel trees, which I've been looking for forever because my grandma had one. Um. And that's about all I post. I don't get in the political. I don't go read people's feeds other than stuff that pops up instantly or I like stuff my wife does or whatever to support her um, artwork. But I don't really use it like I used to. I took a month off once. I think I talked about it on the show. The only time I used any social media was when I tweeted that an episode from the podcast was done or I went on my Facebook, and I put out um, the show on the Facebook for for Flyover Politic. But all the tweets, anything I got, was from news stories. I didn't go to those. I didn't interact with other people. I have to admit, I was a better person. I felt better. It was less caustic, so to speak. May not have came that way over there podcast because i was venting about whatever story i was reading but um i don't know i think it's getting to the point where we're going to find a way to fix our country and fix the way we treat each other because it just seems the more and more we go down this road people are worse and worse and i and i was going to save the aaron Rodgers stuff for this little screed but That was astounding. I didn't say, you know, I said that everybody who's left the Packers thinks he's a dick. But I didn't say anything really caustic about Aaron Rodgers. It was like I basically said, Jesus doesn't exist in the middle of a Baptist church. People couldn't handle the fact that I criticized number 12. And because they had the anonymity of the internet, they went all in. They called me names, they chased me. It was no different than, you know, keeping on what usually it is. It's the liberal world that does this stuff. I am still getting tweets over that transgender hashtag. It's now majority, you're a piece of shit when it was majority, thanks for supporting the transgender community. It's just people won't leave it go. And That was a tweet from 10 days ago. But it comes up on their feed. They see it. When they see it on somebody else's feed, they lose their goddamn mind, and they attack. And it's not nice attacking. It's demeaning, un-American, I'm a piece of shit, I'm a transform, people like you need to evolve, you're a caveman. I mean, just a bunch of crap over an opinion. So, if I could be king for a day... I would shut it the fuck down. The internet is for business only. Get the fuck off. Everybody go back to talking to each other. All your phones are only for phone calls. Grow the fuck up. Because it has become a wall that you think you can hide behind. And even conservatives, doesn't matter. We have lost kindness to other fellow human beings we just think we can say whatever the fuck we want because i'm a handle not a person and you're a handle not a person but that's not how it works you know secondly if social media was treated like everything else in life and liberals were held accountable just like conservatives are there'd be no problem but that's not the way it works I can go out there and say the most horrible, vile things to human beings as long as they're conservatives. Nobody fucking cares. Twitter's not going to ban me. It's good to go. Fuck them motherfuckers. So, I don't know. I think it's something we have to look into as a country. We have to fix a way to do it. Because, you know, if anything, George H.W. Bush, Have you actually read what people were putting online, it's just... It's sad. Not even for a second. Can journalists, politicians, or citizens take a break from taking a shovel to people that don't agree with your worldview? They just can't do it. It's fucking impossible. And I'm not being a hypocrite. Yeah, I'm on this show and I take a shovel to liberals. But I'm usually shoveling them upside the head because they're a bunch of steaming hypocrites or they're totalitarian They're trying to make the entire world be them. That's not how the world's ever worked, nor will it ever work. And unfortunately, their idealisms and their approach to the world are what usually starts wars, for Christ's sake. Eventually, people get done with your shit, and they don't take it anymore. I think slowly but surely, like that mama bear, we in the middle of the country are starting to bite back. But it's just crazy. It's got to improve. I mean, this is the holiday season, but you go out there on Twitter or Facebook, yeah, it's not the holiday season. like it doesn't exist. So, this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share this with your family and friends. Send comments or suggestions for segments to FOPPODCAST at gmail.com, Podcast gmail.com. Get this show on SoundCloud, Podcast Static, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Remember to check out the Flavor Politic webpage at FOPPODCAST.com, FOPPODCAST.com. To see links to feeds for the show, links to the Facebook page, and to email us, and there on the episode release page, you will see a link to every episode. Episode until March. It's March 2019. And then the website goes away. Next podcast, we're gonna go with the 19th. Get a podcast in the 19th. And a podcast in well, you know, I'm not gonna do the 19th. Um, what am I thinking? I'm on the wrong week. 12th. 12th and 19th. We're gonna do two podcasts for the holidays. The 12th is gonna be a normal podcast. The 19th is going to be our Christmas podcast. There'll be no politics. There'll be Christmas music. Christmas cookies. Christmas concepts. Christmas decorating. Christmas stories. So for those that listen to the show. For their blood and guts. The 12th will be your last one. Until after Christmas. And I'll do one. you know, Probably on the 28th. Try to get one in for the end of the year. But um, the 12th will be the next one before Christmas. That's going to be political. Then the 19th will be non-political and then we're going to do our year-end podcast on the 28th of December, year of our Lord, 2018 so those are the next three podcasts, 12th, 19th 28th, so anyway, make sure you disconnect, spend some time with your family, it's the holiday season, watch some Christmas shows, eat some Christmas cookies, drink some freaking eggnog and have a good time and tune in next Wednesday for another exciting episode of Fly Over Politics Podcast, as always thanks for listening
0: thanks for listening to this episode of flyover politic podcast remember to check out our website at foppodcas and remember it's a short ride make every day count
12: To blend. and I understood because I. Feel-